What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 20A of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this episode. It isn't often that we get to hear an experienced teacher lay out from go to woe their philosophy of teaching as well as exactly how they carry it out. And to my mind, this is what makes this episode of the ERRR so special. In this episode, we speak to Craig Barton. If you haven't heard of Mr. Barton before, then you're in for a real treat. Craig is a mathematics teacher of over 14 years experience, currently working at Thornley Salesian College in Bolton. Since 2009, he has been the secondary maths advisor to TES, formerly the Times Education Supplement, the largest professional network of teachers in the world, where he does everything from content review and curation to Twitter account managing. Craig is the co-founder of Diagnostic Questions. This is a free website holding the world's largest collection of high-quality maths diagnostic multiple-choice questions and helps teachers and students all over the world to identify, understand, and resolve key misconceptions. He has a wonderful personal website, mrbartonmaths.com, on which he has an incredible collection of research summaries, puzzles, jokes, and most interesting to me, his Mr. Barton Maths podcast. When I started the ERRR back in 2017, it was prompted in large part because I couldn't find any other long-form educational podcasts that really got into the nitty-gritty of teaching and learning. Little did I know that at that time, Craig's podcast had been going for just over a year, and it was very similar to the podcast that I wanted to create and the podcast that the ERRR has since become. If you love the ERRR and would love more of this type of listening content, my number one recommendation would be the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast. Though it's got maths in the title, there are many episodes that are relevant to all educators. I'd especially recommend the two episodes with Dylan William, which I'll link to in the show notes to this episode. In this discussion with Craig, we dive into the detail about his recently published book, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths. We cover topics such as cognitive load theory, motivation for mathematics, explicit instruction, diagnostic questions, and a special treat for the Craig Barton fans, as well as to all of us, some never-before-heard stories of the challenges Craig faced when he changed schools during the first few years of his career. Now, this is ERRR episode 20A because after two hours of discussion, Craig had to run off and record one of his own podcast episodes that he'd already booked in. Unfortunately, or fortunately, we only got through about half of the questions, so I'll be chatting to Craig again shortly and hope to have episode 20B out within a couple of weeks of this episode's release. On the topic of interviews, a few months ago, Craig had me onto the Mr. Barton Maths podcast, where I was dutifully interrogated about how I taught mathematics in 2017, as well as on many of the concepts that I found particularly revolutionary to my teaching in the past few years. I'll be sure to link to that interview in the show notes too. And finally, a reminder that I'm now putting out a weekly email entitled Teacher Ollie's Takeaways, in which I share a handful of insights, interesting and actionable articles that I've come across from Twitter, blogs, and various other sources in the week just past. It comes out at 3.30 on a Friday afternoon, perfectly timed for your weekend reading pleasure. And last week it included articles on curriculum design, rubrics, and tacit knowledge, and the outcomes of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation research 
on teacher evaluation. Very juicy stuff. I've also just published a blog post entitled Effect Sizes, Robust or Bogus? In this post, I reflect on my recent discussions with Adrian Simpson, who critiqued the use of effect sizes in meta-analyses, and John Hattie, who defended them. In this robust or bogus post, I analyse the arguments and share what I now think about whether effect sizes deserve the prominence that they currently enjoy in educational research, or whether they're more a waste of time. So, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 20A of the ERRR with Craig Barton. I feel like saying Mr. Barton, but I will say Craig Barton. <laughs> welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Cheers, Ollie. Now, first question, as I'm sure you're aware, is if you're at a party, Craig, and someone asks, or if someone hasn't have heard of you before, and they ask, hi, Craig, what is it that you do? What's your answer? It's a, I tell you what, it's a tricky one to spell this, Ollie, because I cannot remember last time I was at, I was at a party. <laughs> so I had to get that in my head straight away. But if somebody, if I am there and somebody asks me, I'd, I'd say math teacher, just because it's quite a simple answer. But also, it always provokes a response. I'd say about 10% of people will say, oh, I love math. So I was really good at math. We'll have a conversation there. But about 90% will normally say, oh, I hate math. Or I used to absolutely hate math. And we can have a conversation there as well. So, whereas, like, I've got friends who are accountants, investment bankers, lawyers. That shuts down the conversation straight away whenever yeah, right. somebody says, oh, I'm an accountant. That's like, oh, God, I'll walk away, go and have a drink somewhere. Whereas maths teacher, that seems to really get the conversation going. But as I say, I have not been to a party for ages. Got it. I was wondering, what what's kind of second in line for you? Because obviously you do a lot of other things. You you run a couple of websites, you've got a podcast, you've written a book. If someone to say was to say, what else do you do? What would be the second thing that came up for you? probably say I do work with teachers. I think that's probably the, the second thing I do and probably my kind of second most enjoyable thing. So whether it's training teachers or giving talks at conferences or, or the podcast I see is kind of working with teachers as well. So that would probably be my, my second answer, Ollie. Okay. For, for our second question, I wanted to steal one from your fantastic podcast, <laughs> Craig. And, and that question is, if you weren't in education and if you weren't doing all the great things you are doing, what do you think you would be doing instead? I could tell you what I'd love to be doing, but it's not very realistic at all. I'd love to be playing music. And it's interesting that I interviewed Dylan William and both Tom and Tom Sherrington uh, recently, and they both used to be in bands. I think Tom is still in a band. So I think if I wasn't in education, I'd be begging Dylan and Tom to kind of get together in a bit of a band, I think, and go on a bit of a, an education tour. But I'd be bringing kind of a limited ability to, to play the piano, zero ability to sing. But in my head, I'm, I'm a lot better than I actually am. But um, yeah, I'd love to be involved in music. I, I absolutely love playing my piano. Well, there you go. I, I also had a high school band that I took pretty seriously. And you're also- in, Ollie. You're in the gang. You're, and- in. you're in already. <laughs> Exciting. And, and I think James Mannion's a bit of a, a musician as well. So the, the band's building. Coming together. It's coming together. Perfect. Very, very exciting. Next question, Craig. Your work output seems to be pretty incredible. So I was just wondering, what does your average day look like? Yeah, it's, it's a tricky one, this. So um, I'm on a year secondment this year from school, so I don't have a, a full teaching teaching load. So my day 
this year, this academic year is very different to what it's been kind of two, three years ago, when it would literally just be turn up to school, get through the day as much as I can, grab any spare moments I can to do all this stuff, and then essentially work every weekend and, and every evening trying to keep on top of everything else. But that just wasn't sustainable. So myself and my wife took the decision that this year I'd do a succumbent, and my school have been very, very good with this. So I have an office in school, but I can also work a lot from home. And I'm still teaching in my year 11s, but I have a lot more free time. So that means that I can really think about how to get the most out of my day. And I think when we spoke, Ollie, on, on my podcast, I, I told you that I was a fan of Tim Ferriss. And I think I think you listened to a bit of Tim Ferriss's podcast as well. Mm-hmm. So I've really, in preparation for this year, tried to think how to make the most of my day. So I like to get up early. Um, I'm normally, I roll out of bed, no shower or anything like that. I mean, there's probably too much information there, but I'm straight <laughs> straight to my office. I'm normally up typing and working from about 6.30, 6.45 in the morning. And I go right for a good three hours without breakfast or anything like that. And that's when I get the bulk of my kind of thinking done. That's that's the hard work. That's all the stuff that's been ticking over in my head the night before. And hopefully my brain's been sorting it out whilst I'm sleeping. And I just bang out three hours straight away. Then I'll have my breakfast. Then I'll normally bang another three hours of, of workout. And this work could be anything. It could be when my work for diagnostic questions. It could be writing a blog. It could be doing some podcast stuff. If I'm doing a book, it'll be writing the book. The kind of work where I really need some kind of deep thoughts. And then the afternoon is when I start not winding down, but that's when I start doing all my admin style tasks. So I catch, I batch all my emails together. So catching up with email, all that kind of stuff. I, I try to go for a walk. Like we have crap weather over here. We're not as, not as lucky as you. So it's, I have to really rug up and force myself to go outside. But that's when I'll get the kind of boring stuff done. And then I'll kind of get a second wind later on towards the evening where I'll tend to do kind of creative stuff. So I like to... If I've got ideas for a book or an idea for a podcast or a blog post, that's when I'll just do some thinking and bullet point things down. And then I can pick that up again when the hard work starts uh, the following morning. So I've, I've really thought deeply about how I work best and how to structure my day. And I think that is one of the things that frustrates me when, well, looking back now, when I used to have a full teaching load and teachers, I think can resonate with this, your time is very much dictated to you. You have to do things at certain times where when the kind of great freedom and benefit of, of kind of working for yourself and having a bit more free time is you can do the things when you're at your best for doing them, if that makes sense. And I've just found my, my kind of productivity has gone through the ceiling um, this current academic year as a result of that. It's, it's interesting. I mean, many people go into teaching because they want to make a positive difference. And often I think that a big question can be, you know, how can I make that, that mm-hmm. difference the biggest um, some people would say that working in, for example, a low SES public school might be really positive. Some might think that it's in a higher SES kind of private school or sure. your public school because then you can influence perhaps more of the leaders of the future. How did your choice to move out of the classroom and into the current work you're doing now kind of fit with your goals of the impact that you want to make on education? Yeah, great, great question. It, it, it was a flipping massive decision, if I'm honest with you. And it was a big decision for, for a few reasons, really. My favorite thing I do and the, my favorite thing I've ever done is teach kids. I, I flipping love that. That's when I'm at my happiest. Like, why do you, I say that. There are some times when I'm at my lowest point when, yeah. when a class <laughs> is going out of control and stuff. It's like, it, there's never a dull day in teaching. But taking that decision, and it was quite nice because 
I knew I would still be teaching this year. So mm. my current year 11s, so like 15 and 16 year olds who are doing their GCSE, the big high stakes test we do over here. I taught them in year seven, year eight and year nine. So I knew that for their big year, I wanted to still be involved. So I, I knew I, I wanted to teach them at least an hour a week um, and kind of for some intensive uh, sessions. So I, I, an entire year off teaching, I don't think I would have been, been, been ready for at this stage. But it got to the point, Holly, where... I was doing talks at conferences over the last kind of 10 years or so. And people were saying to me, can you do something on this? I'd love you to do further on this and this and this. And I just thought I've got potential to have a fairly big impact here. And I just didn't have the time to do it. And again, like I've got the most understanding, lovely wife in the world, but she was getting sick of me because I just, she just wasn't seeing me at all. And I was stressed mm -hmm. and just busy. And I just, even to like book a Saturday off, I had to like schedule it in like four months in advance and stuff. And it was just rubbish. So I just thought, actually, if I can just have a year or maybe two years where I can do all the other things that I've put on the back burner, that actually, even though I'm out of classroom, I may just be able to have a big impact on a lot of teachers and, and a lot of students. And that's kind of how I justified it to myself. But it was it was a big, big decision because I can't see the day-to-day -day impact I have anymore, whereas you could in the class. Like, there's nothing better than a kid saying to you at the end of a lesson, I get this now, sir. Or you see that they do a bit rubbish on a test and then the you give them some help and then a couple of weeks later, they've absolutely nailed it and a big smile on their face. And I live for that kind of stuff and I don't mm. get that day-to-day -day anymore. And that's hard. But hopefully through the podcast and the other things I do, Fingers crossed, in my head anyway, I'm kind of helping a few more people in a broader sense. But yeah, it was a, it was a big decision, Ollie, big decision. Understandable. Could, could you give us a little bit of a, a background of your career to date? How long have you been teaching for now? Yeah, whew. I always get this wrong, like numbers aren't my strong point here. I think I'm going for like maybe 14, 14 years. I think it's my 14th year, possibly 15. So I can, I'll do this dead day quick. So I, um, That'd be great. I did... Uh, I did, I did economics at Cambridge because I, I had visions of being some multimillionaire investment banker or something like that. And all my friends are absolutely flipping loaded. I'm like the token poor teacher out of my friends. And yeah, I still have to buy, still have to like share rounds and stuff when, when we go to the pub. I'm absolutely fuming about that. <laughs> but I did economics at Cambridge, but I always wanted to, always wanted to, to be a teacher, but I thought I have this opportunity. Let's give it a go. And, and I loved every minute of that. But when I finished my, my course and I had a few options, I thought, no, um, since I was little, I wanted to teach, so I'm going to do it. So did the traditional route over here, PGCE. So one year of kind of back at university doing secondary maths education training. Then I taught for two years and then it all kicked off, Ollie, because my girlfriend at the time was an Australian in, in Brisbane, in Queensland. So I went over there after teaching for two years. I went over to live in, live in Brisbane for a year or so. And that was great because I, I built my Mr. Barton Maths website. I got to work in a couple of schools over there, just kind of voluntary stuff. But I, I got to experience a different education system. But also I had time. I had time to reflect on my first two years of, as a teacher. And I think there's a danger that if you just teach all the way through, you just get, it's kind of the, you're on the tread, on the treadmill um, and it just goes round and round and round and all the years merge into one. But that year break really made me think, actually, no, I want to make a bigger difference. I want to do this, this and that. <laughs> but then, then she dumped me. So I was off Australia. I was off your country for many, many years. Um, so you're lucky, I'm, you're lucky I'm still talking to you. Yeah? We appreciate but, it. Uh, <laughs> so then I came back to the UK and I became an advanced skills teacher, which is a qualification doesn't really exist over here anymore. And it's an absolute crime because it was brilliant. 
because what it meant was it was a lengthy assessment process that you had to go through to get it. But when you got it, it meant that four days a week you were in your school and one day a week you got to visit local schools in your area and help support teachers and students. And I learned so much there because it meant once a week I was witnessing an entirely different range of teaching experiences, styles, working with different types of kids. And yeah, that was that was my that, that's where I learned everything I know, basically, because you learn from watching other people. And if you're just stuck in your own classroom all the time, who knows whether you're doing things right or wrong. So it was that that period of being an advanced skills teacher for about the first three or four years, really intensive, once a week, every week, doing things all over the place. That kind of made me into the teacher I am. And it made me realize that some of the things I was doing weren't so good. And I just got better and better and better and learned to work with other teachers because I was young. Like I was, I think I was the country's youngest advanced skills teacher. So it meant I was I was helping support 40, 50 year old teachers. And that's difficult because they know a lot more than me. And here's me, you know, wet behind the ears trying to offer advice. But it, it I think I learned there how to how to speak to people, communicate and work effectively in a partnership and be supportive and so on. I'll ask you, I'll, I'll just put in there for, with another question, Craig. What, what do you think it was about you or your approach that allowed you to get or allowed the people assessing you to feel like you could make a positive contribution, for example, to those 50 year old teachers? Yeah, good question. And it's. I don't know, it's hard to answer without sounding kind of cocky. I'm, I'm not very, I find this hard, Ollie, you know, like I love asking questions and answering them are really, really tough, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> I get so, my revenge today, Craig. Yeah, I thought you might. I think, I think, and it, it's similar, right? Because every, t- if, if you're lucky enough to observe another teacher, just as part of kind of departmental practice, or perhaps you're a line manager or something like this, I think it's the same kind of skill set you need when, when you're giving feedback. And the mistake I made early on in this role of an advanced skills teacher is my feedback would always start with something like, I would have done this. And when I was watching a lesson, I'd be thinking, well, I would have done it like that, or I would have done this. And that is no help whatsoever because I'm a very different teacher. Everyone's a different teacher. I'm a very different teacher to the people I was watching. They're a very different teacher to me. So the question I started asking myself instead was, why are they doing that? What, what decision has led them to, to, to make, mm-hmm. this, make this decision in the classroom? And once I could start to understand that, then I think I could be more constructive in my help. Whereas I've certainly been on the receiving end of lots of the feedback that just says, well, I would have done that at the start, that at the middle, that at the end. And I think, oh, brilliant. That's brilliant for you. But I didn't do that. So if, you can, if I can understand the teacher's choices, then I can then start, I believe, to support them. And then I can start to say, okay, well, I understand why you made that choice. That's fantastic. Let, let's explore a couple of possibilities with that. And I'm not saying either one's right or wrong, but let, let's just talk through the thinking of it. And I, I think just that little shift made, made a big difference, if that makes sense. Great. So what was next? Yeah, so that's, we're kind of reaching the end of the story here. So I, I taught in a, a secondary school where I was an advanced skills teacher for five years, a comprehensive school, a state school uh, near Liverpool. And then I felt it was time for a change, if I'm honest. And that was a big decision, Ollie. And I don't think enough teachers speak about this, right? I think there's a lot of focus on your first job as a teacher, right? When you need all this support, we call it the NQT year over here, newly qualified teacher year. And everyone chats about that, but that's hard, your first year as a teacher. But I tell you what, that was a breeze compared to my first year having moved school. I think that's the hardest thing for a teacher. Nobody's chatting mm. about this because I was, I thought I'd nailed this teaching lark because everyone knew me in my school. I knew every kid's name walking down the corridor. I used to love walking to lesson. Hey, Josh, hey, Jenny, how's it going? I knew everything about these kids. 
if I got put on cover or I had to step in to teach for a colleague, another colleague, I knew all the kids. So there was no behavior issues or anything like that. I then moved to this new school. I didn't know what hit me. Ollie, I'll tell you this now. and I don't think I've spoke about this um, too much, actually. I think I cried probably three, at least three nights a week for the first three months of, of my new job in my new school. And it was a more challenging school, but not, not anything out of the ordinary. And I was just like, what on earth is going here? I've lost the ability to teach. I didn't know what I was doing. The kids had no respect mm. for me. The kids, I remember I had a year 10 class, so 14 and 15 year olds. And I went in there and I was, I had all my, all my rich activities. We'll probably dig into that later on, but all, all these ways to engage kids um, in mathematics. And the kids were like, do you realize, sir, we've had seven different teachers. And like these kids have been like in school, like three years, four years, that had seven different math teachers. So their attitude was, why on earth should we behave and respect you when you're probably going to be gone at Christmas, like everybody else is going to be gone. And I had to flip in battle. And I like, again, thank God for my wife, because I came home, I was devastated, Ollie. I was just, I mm. came home, went to bed sobbing, because I just didn't think I could do it anymore. And that was hard. But I stuck it out. And then, so it's my seventh year there. Now, as I say, I'm, I teach there much, much less these days. And now it's almost at the stage where it was in my previous school, where I know most of the kids, I'm, I'm kind of very, very settled there. But yeah, moving schools is, is flipping, flipping hard. And then just to very quickly complete the score, story, I'm also the mass advisor for the Times Education Supplement, the TES. I got that job maybe nine years ago. I just do that kind of part-time. And I am the co-founder of Diagnostic Questions um, as well. And I'm sure we'll dig into those things later on. No, I, I mean, I really appreciate you sharing that story, Craig, of the challenge you had and and how stressful mm. that was for you. Because I know many, many listeners of your podcast in the UK, for example, look up to you as, you know, a, a wonderful math teacher <laughs> who's probably never had any challenges and always <laughs> been fantastic. So for you, for you to share that is really powerful. And I, I think will be very powerful for lots of new starting teachers out there who are going to bed three nights a week crying yeah. to think this is okay and this doesn't mean that, you know, I'll always have challenges like this, for example. So really appreciate you sharing that. I wanted to know whether you wanted to go into any more detail about what it what, or what steps you took to get through that challenging year or whether it was just a matter of getting acclimatized and getting to know students over, over the longer term. Yeah, again, great question. Part of it was the fact that I just kept turning up. That was a big part of it. And I think, again, you can understand the kid's perspective, right? Like if this guy's just going to be here for a month or two months, what is the point of me kind of investing time and, and energy kind of behaving for him and, and forming this relationship? So the fact I was still there in October, November, December, January, that, that was a big, big part of it. But also, I think there's two other things um, that are important. And I've not really thought about this for a long time, but I'm, I'm glad, you, glad you bring this up, Ollie. The first was I didn't keep quiet about it. And this was hard for me, I'll be honest with you, because I came to that school with a big reputation. I came as I was Mr. Barton Maths at this stage, um, the head teacher and the, the deputy head who appointed me had put a lot of faith, a lot of faith in me. So I was thinking, uh, they were thinking he's going to come. Um, the maths department was in a bit of flux. There was teachers leaving fairly regularly. And I was kind of the big summer signing. So that like helped kind of get the shit back on course. And I come and it's like, I can't teach. So they, they must be thinking, what have we hired? <laughs> Who's this joker that we've hired here? So it was hard for me to speak up, but I had to, I had to. So I, I had a, and I felt embarrassed, Ollie. It was really, really tough. But Karen, who's my, still my head of department, as she was second in department at that time, I had a word with Karen and I had a word with Andrea, who's my deputy head and the line manager for, for maths. And I said, I'm struggling. And it was one particular class. Like 
I was struggling with all classes, but I could teach them. But there was one particular class who I was just having big issues with. And I'm, t- I'm talking, if there was a film, if someone was videoing these lessons, I, I wouldn't be allowed to work again. Let me tell you this. I will be picture the scene. I'm stood at the front trying to teach the beauty of fractions and kids are chucking chairs at each other. They're slapping each other. It was, it was all kicking up. And I had nothing. I had absolutely, I tried shouting. They were like laughing at me. I had nothing to offer whatsoever. So I spoke to my head of department and I spoke to my deputy head and I said, look, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. I'm, I'm here to stay, but I need help. I need help. So what it was, it was a case of one time, and it's embarrassing to say this, and Deputy Head came and sat in one of the lessons with me. And bear in mind, I'm not a new teacher at this point. This is my probably sixth year of, of teaching. And I've signed so many lessons offering support to staff. And now there was me having to ask for it. That was a big thing because I think it made the kids realize that actually, yeah, they're taking this thing seriously. Uh, one of the kids temporarily moved to another class and I hated doing that. I got him back in the end, but he had to move temporarily just because of the dynamic. He didn't get on well with the other kids. So that was one of the things. So that was kind of me speaking up saying I need help and support. And I advise any teacher to do that. Don't suffer in silence would would, would be my first thing that made a difference. For, for, following that up, what? Sure. how did your, because I'm sure there's many leaders here listening, how did your leaders support you in that context? Because I don't know, I've had a student teacher uh, not that long ago who really, really struggled. Mm. And I find, I found that ch- challenging to know how to support that student teacher in a way yeah. that was pushing them and encur- but is encouraging yeah. them at the same time. So how, how did your, your leadership support you in that, in that time? Yeah, it was, again, it's as simple as just talking to me, Ollie, to be honest with you. It, it, it wasn't like, it, and I remember it, Andrea used to do this and, and she was busy as anything, but it would be a couple of times a week. She'd just come into the maths office and we'd just sit and chat, chat how things went and stuff. And it was frustrating for me because I had to swallow a lot of pride. And I've had to do that a lot over the last few years, like writing the book. I've had to, I had to look back and, and think, hold my hands up and say, yeah, I've made mistakes. And it was like that here. I was, it was frustrating because I knew them like, I was all right with the maths. I was all right with the pedagogy, but it made me realize that if the kids aren't listening, you, you know, you're literally wasting your time. So it was just talking things through with her, learning from her experience and realizing that whilst I knew the maths, I didn't know the school. I didn't know the context of these kids. And it was just talking and learning from her and realizing that whilst I have a bit of expertise in a very narrow domain of mathematics teaching, far more important is the wider expertise of this kind of school context. So so it was that, Ollie, and it feeds into the kind of second thing I learned. And that was, and Dylan William talks about this, and it, it fascinates me, this, Ollie, because you'll know, and I think you're in the same boat as me, that we're a bit obsessed with this research, education research. Like, I could read about working memory, long-term memory, cognitive load, desirable difficulties all day long. And, I, and there's a danger that I think they're the be-all and end-all. But I've interviewed Dylan William twice now, and he's made the same point twice. And that is the most important thing for him that makes a good teacher is relationships, the ability to form relationships with students. Because if you don't have the relationships, and this doesn't mean you're the best mates with them or anything like that. This just means there's a mutual respect. You take a genuine interest in them. You are genuinely care about their learning, what they get up to, their well-being. And it's just as simple as just remembering things like, how did the footy match go last night? Or how's your sister getting on at university? Those little things, I think, make the difference. And whenever I started dropping those things in, and they weren't just token one-offs, like if the first time you do it to the kids, kids are smart, right? So the first time I asked one of these ropey lads, 
how did you get on at football last night? I think he said to me, you're only asking me that, sir, so I won't piss about this lesson. Sorry, I probably, <laughs> should, I probably shouldn't swear on this on this podcast. He knew. He knew straight away, right? But when I asked him the second time, the third time, the fourth time, he's kind of getting ground down that he's like, all right, actually, maybe he is fairly interested in me. And so relationships, I think, are the, uh, I think are the absolute key to this. And I think that's something that kind of goes under the radar a little bit. But for me, that, that, was, a, that was a game changer. Sticking around, asking for help, and then trying to genuinely take an interest in those kids. So that, that, that kind of turned it around for me anyway. That's wonderful. Now, we, we, I've, 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 lo- I've lost where we were. Were you going to tell us oh. a bit more about your journey? or, or, or No, I'm that? done. I'm, journey's over there. I'm done off. All right. We're up to the book then, I guess. Now, Paddy had a question about the, the structure of your book and how you chose to put it together. Sure. Hi, Craig. Paddy talking. Hey, Paddy. Hey. Your book had an interesting and unique setup, incorporating your prior thoughts and takeaways grouped into really small, specific topics. Uh, was the final product how you always wanted your book to be set out and what were your goals through that setup? Yeah, good good question. It was interesting really. Like I never intended to write a write a book really. I started started the podcast and I would be listening to all these big names, um, Ollie included, who were just telling me things that I just just hadn't considered before. And Again, we spoke about Tim Ferriss before. Um, I, I like to learn things and make sure I, I hang on to the, the messages. from. Uh, and if I just listen to something, I think, oh, that's a good idea at this time. And if I don't actually do something with it, it just disappears. So when I'm listening to these guests and they're telling me to read things, I'm, make, I'm, I'm reading them, I'm making notes. And all of a sudden, kind of categories started emerging. So I'd be learning lessons on uh, cognitive load theory. And I'd be learning lessons on problem solving and memory and all these different areas. So just on a practical level, I started sorting how I was keeping track of all this research and notes just into folders because I love a folder. Like if you see my my computer here, it's folder central. Like God knows how many layers deep it goes. But nothing makes me happier than organizing folders. So I was doing that in terms of my research, getting everything ordered. And it just turned out that there happened to be 12 areas kind of all this research was fitting into. And then a publisher just contacted me out of the blue and said, would you be interested in writing a book? And I I thought, well, what on earth am I going to write a book on? And then I thought, well, wait a minute, actually, I'm learning all this stuff and they're actually fit into these 12 folders. So that's possibly 12 chapters. So once I got that, I then thought, what kind of book would I like to read? Or or probably flip it the other round. Why don't I like certain books? And I thought, I actually like, teachers are busy. So I know I don't very rarely have time to sit down and read two to three hours of a book or something like that. Some of these chapters in books, like they're pretty meaty stuff. So I thought what I want is I want some kind of bite-sized stuff. I want some bite-sized lessons within these chapters. So that that kind of then led itself to the kind of mini sections within the chapter where, you know, within uh, the section on desirable difficulties, there'll be nine or 10 little small bite-sized things. So that was the kind of structure of that. And then I thought, what's going to be the most useful way to tell the story and I thought, well, I've got to put my hands up here. And this was a big decision as well, because I, kn- I knew I wasn't going to come out of this looking good. I thought the best way to do this is just to list all the mistakes I made. So I started I started writing down every mistake I think I'd made. And I thought, actually, that's quite a nice way to structure it. What, must, what I used to do, what were all my mistakes? What were my sources of inspiration? And they would be research papers, podcast guests, people I've spoke about, videos I've watched. What I took away, what lesson I took away from those conversations and that research, and then crucially, how did that change my practice? What what do I do now? And I just thought 
actually that's quite a useful structure for the reader but selfishly it was quite a nice structure to write to as well because i could just write in little small bite-sized things i didn't have to think of the overall narrative so it actually was fairly easy to write once i got that structure and i hope that people find it quite a useful structure to, to read whether they're reading for long periods of time or whether they're dipping in and out if that makes sense paddy thanks it definitely does what i thought made the actual book so powerful for for me as sort of a viewer and a listener and a and a reader was just the experience of learning it all alongside you like through the podcast and then sort of a culmination <laughs> in the actual book um that sort of uh, i think even without if you were just reading the book you wouldn't have that same experience so um yeah I, if anyone was to read it i recommend doing it alongside all the all the learning that happens there great advice thanks patty Early on in the book, you mentioned the day your life changed, Craig. Mm. You, you, you referenced Daniel Willingham's book, Why Students Don't Like School. I was wondering if you could kind of give listeners a bit more detail about how that book changed your life. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I talk, I, I recommend this book to everybody. And I'm not just talking every teacher, like anybody I bump. Like if I was at that party again, Ollie, this is probably why I don't get invited to these parties because I'd be recommending them, Willingham's book. I, I just think it's an absolutely wonderful book. I remember when I was reading it, so I actually listened to it on Audible because I do a fair bit of traveling. And I was at Euston Station. I remember this very, very vividly. So I don't know where we're talking, three years ago, four years ago, something like that. I've got Willingham's book in my ears. And I was just kind of sat there and I, and I like listening to audiobooks because it means I can kind of look around and move around and stuff. But all I was doing with this audiobook was I was just kept pressing pause. I'd get out my phone, I'd open up Evernote and I'd just be writing notes. And then I'd press play again. And then about four seconds later, flipping it, press pause again, get out my phone, write notes. My notes were longer than the book itself. I just caught, I was just writing things left, right and center because it was just like bombshell after bombshell after bombshell. And it's, it's tricky now because it's, I don't know if you find this, I guess this is classic kind of curse of knowledge. I almost can't remember what it was like to not have read that book, if that makes sense. Because the things now I've now thought about so much for these last few years, and I've put them into practice so much, but I do vividly remember the first time I learned about the distinction between working memory and long-term memory. The fact that working memory was where all the thought takes place, but long-term memory is where all the knowledge is stored and the interplay between those two and the fragility of working memory. I read that and thought, how on earth do I not know this? That is flipping so important. And then the, the big one, and again, it's a cliche, but like memory, memory is the residue of thought. When it, whenever, whenever I read that, personally, I thought that is a beautiful phrase. But then when I started to think about it deeper, and then I think Willingham, I don't remember it, whether it's in uh, his book, whether it's in one of his AFT articles, but where he said that the most important thing for teachers to consider when planning is what will students be thinking about at this point of time? And Ollie, I'd never done that. And I feel terrible admitting that. But when I'm planning lessons, I used to be thinking about, is this going to be engaging the kids? Um, are they going to be enjoying this particular thing? I wasn't really getting to the crux of actually what will my kids be thinking about at this stage? And that message was just like, whoa, flipping heck, that is big, big. And then there's tons of stuff. There's absolutely tons of stuff about real life maths, context, all that kind of thing within the book. But it was that. It was memory and the attention, what kids are thinking about was the two biggies for me from that book. And that it did, it changed my life, Ollie. So that set me on a journey that I think has been 
well, I hope it's been better for my kids and it's been better for me as a teacher. But if I hadn't read that book, God only knows what would have happened. You won't be talking to me now. I can say I can say that much. Probably true. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, the book had a massive impact on me as well. I I read that book just when I was in my last year of uni, and I'd finished I'd finished part of my double degree, and I was finishing off the la- the, the other half. And I just take it up Mandarin, and I actually came across the book through Scott Young. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's like a no, no. a guy who learns a lot of languages. And I was trying to learn Mandarin at the time, and he recommended Willingham's book, and it totally changed my understanding. Firstly, I was like, "Why the heck didn't anyone tell me this in school?" Because I've been yep, wasting yep. wasting my life like trying to learn things in incredibly inefficient ways this whole time. But the other thing was, it just completely flipped how I was approaching my university. During that time, so my marks that year after I'd read that book just totally skyrocketed because I suddenly realised that for one, I couldn't just kind of summarise things on a sheet and expect to do well in the <laughs> exam. I actually had had to have it in my long term memory so I could draw on it. Yes, and utilise it effectively. So I, th- I think it had a similar impact for both of us. Now you've you're obviously quite committed to your education, and in your book you talked about being so committed that you're thinking about getting a tattoo. So I was wondering if you wanted to share share with us what what that education tattoo would say and why that's the case, Craig. Yeah, it's one of those things. I wish I hadn't put it, Ollie. I'll be honest with you, because I, I get asked a couple of times, "Where's the tattoo?" And I'm scared of needles and I hate pain as well. So maybe I'll just kind of draw it on with a, a biro or something. But again, it's it's, it's boring this, Ollie, because I'm I'm going to go back to Willingham again. I think I'd have I think I would choose of all the kind of. And I don't think William actually said this. It was actually Peps McRae who I interviewed on my podcast. He had a slightly different take on this. So I think Willingham says students remember what they think about. But what I like, Peps McRae's kind of tweak on it is students remember what they attend to. And I think that's better. I I think that's more useful for for teachers to know because we can't control what students think about, obviously. And we we, we can't control what students attend to. But I think we can have more control over it. And I think whenever you start thinking about cognitive load theory, as I do regularly, and you start thinking about (laughs) displays in classrooms, which I've gotten a lot trouble about over here but me wanting to ban distracting classroom displays and particularly when you think about i like to present works examples in silence first what i'm trying to do with all those things is i'm trying to control what students are attending to in that moment where is their focus and i think if i can get that focus right if i can fill up as much of their fragile working memories with the most relevant information, I believe that's going to give them the best chance of understanding and then facilitating this transfer to long-term memory. So I'd go for that. Students remember what they attend to. I mean, it would be a painful tattoo, that, because that's long. That'd have to go like <laughs> right down the arm or something, but I'd probably go for that. Get it in Mandarin, it might be a bit, bit quicker. <laughs> All right, another, another key thing that you talked about in your book, and I'm really keen to go into a bit of detail about this, is the distinction sure. between knowledge and skills. Mm. So could you tell us a little bit about your understanding of this distinction, what you used to think about it, what you think now, and why is it important? Yeah, it's a controversial one, this, Ollie, because I'd say not a great deal of people agree with me on this one, but I'll, I'll state my case anyway, uh, for the record. I think there is more of a consensus, or there's a larger number of people who would agree that skills between different domains in terms of different subjects 
don't transfer all that well. I think it's fairly intuitive to say that the ability to think critically in history does not necessarily transfer perfectly to the ability to think critically in geography or biology or something. I think, and that, that kind of makes sense to me. But maths is a different story because I still think there's a fairly widespread belief that you can teach students to be problem solvers in mathematics. And I don't think that's the case. And I did think it was the case for years. So I don't know if you're familiar with the work of, I should say his name, George Polya, P-O-Y-L-A, with his, his list of kind of approaches to problem solving and all these strategies. And you see these adorning walls in, in classrooms. And the idea there is that there are a set of kind of processes that students can go to, go through to approach these unstructured kind of unfamiliar problems. And you get advice like highlight keywords, try to solve a simpler problem. Can you generalize? Can you draw a diagram? All these kind of things. And I, I used to buy into this left, right and center and I would do problem solving lessons. So kind of especially in the build up to GCSE exams we would do once a week, we would do, right, okay, I'm going to bang a load of unfamiliar problems at you. You try and solve them, then I'll talk you through how I would solve them. And what I tended to find without Ali was, and this may have been my failings as a teacher, and I think that's partly to do with it, that the ability for a student to solve one problem did not then help them solve another problem, even though I taught them through it. And crucially, even if the deep structure of that problem was very similar, or it required a similar kind of generic problem solving skill, there was, there was an issue with transfer. And what I've come to believe now, and as I say, it's a controversial view, but I think that all these problem solving skills, well, not all of them, right? let's be a bit fair, the majority of these problem solving skills are more useful as labels after you've solved a problem successfully. So let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. Imagine I gave anyone in this, this room a maths problem on probability or something like that, and you managed to solve it. And at some point within that solution, perhaps you had to solve a simpler problem or you had to generalize or something like that. I think you would do that quite impl implicitly. And then at the end of the process, once you've solved the problem, if I then said to you, okay, have a look at that problem. What skills and strategies did you use? I think then you would start going back and assigning labels to those skills and strategies. I don't think you would have done it going forward. I think it's more of a retrospective labeling. Whereas, and the reason that is, by the way, is because you have great domain-specific knowledge of, of probability. And also you have a great bank of previously solved problems that are really well organized in your long-term memory that you can build connections between and draw upon this experience to solve it. Whereas if you have novice students, we can talk about novice and experts later on, but here I'm defining novices to be that they don't have that domain specific knowledge of, of, of probability. If you say to them, okay, well, why don't we try and solve a simpler problem? Well, that's no flipping use to them whatsoever, because if they could solve a simpler problem, that implies that they know what this actual problem is about. And, and I think that's an issue. If we say to them, here's another one, draw a diagram, draw a diagram. That, that's good advice. But it's only good advice if you know what to draw the diagram about. I've seen some woeful diagrams. Because if you can't pick out what the deep structure is, how on earth do you know what diagram to draw? Another one for you, highlight keywords, like all these kind of skills and strategies, highlight keywords. I've seen highlighting keywords actually highlight the distracting surface structures of the problem because the only reason I can highlight keywords is because I know what these problems are about. So for me, I have reached the conclusion and I've, I've kind of tempered it a little bit. So I'll, I'll give you where I'm at at the moment. 
I think the first key thing is to ensure domain specific knowledge of the of the content is is in place and it's secure and as much of it as automated as possible. Once that's the case, then we can start to introduce more complex problems that draw upon different areas of mathematics and involve kind of multi steps to get to the solution. And once we've solved those problems, then we can start looking back and saying, actually, what were my strategies involved here? How does this link to similar problems that we've solved in the past? And then we can start to build up the bank of experiences in our students' long term memories that we benefit as, as mathematics experts. But I just think doing it the other way around, giving kids problems to solve and kind of hoping two things happen. One, that they somehow kind of teach themselves the knowledge or acquire the knowledge required subject specific to solve the problem at the same time, I think is just ridiculous. I think mean, that's asking too much. But secondly, Willingham makes the point, uh, sorry, Sweller makes the point that kids can end up solving these problems successfully, but because they've been so focused on the minutia of the problem, they've no flipping idea how they got to the solution in the, in, uh, in the first place. So you get to the end of a problem, a kid's got it right, but they've not learned anything from the process. They've not added anything to their schema. So I'm going to shut up now because I know I'm, I'm rambling on here. But to, to kind of summarize, I now think that that knowledge has to come first and generic skills don't even transfer all that well across domains, even within mathematics. I think they are pretty domain specific within maths, but I know not a lot of people agree with me. Thanks for that insight, Craig. This is Michaela. And you've Hi, Michaela. got my head spinning a little bit. And interested what you see the role of, or if there is a role of creativity or how that plays into <clears throat> students dealing with complex problems. Yeah, great question. Let me think. So this is possibly something we'll touch upon later, but I'll, I'll just come out with it straight away. A big thing I write about in the book and I think about a lot is the importance of success. So I'm a great believer that success is the key to motivation. And I used to think it was the other way around. I used to think you would try and motivate and engage kids and that would lead to them being successful. Now I think it's completely the other way around. You get, you make kids feel successful they're then motivated, and this kickstarts this kind of virtuous cycle. Now, the reason I'm reason I'm making that point is because in the past, the mistake I've made is to give kids. Well, I'll tell you a classic example actually. So, in year seven, and so that's our eleven and twelve year olds. We used to do a project early on, which was to get them thinking creative, creatively in mathematics. So, I I was dead proud of this one, but it's. I don't know whether I should chuck this out there. This was one of my finest moments as a teacher. But now looking back, I kind of cringe a little bit about it. But I'm, I'm giving you a world exclusive here, right? So uh, this is another mistake of mine. So I wrote this question. So I picture the scene. You've got kids coming through. They're in year seven. It's kind of the early days of high school. And we're coming up to Christmas. So the question was, within a one-week period, how many times could you sing the words to? And it was a... a classic Christmas carol, let's say Jingle Bells, something like that. So within a week, how many times could you actually sing from start to finish all of Jingle Bells, right? Now, I thought this is brilliant because I thought this is an opportunity for kids to be really, really creative with their mathematics. It'll be motivating, it'll be engaging. This is going to be great. And I was thinking to myself, I would flipping love to do this question. Nothing would make me happy than doing this question. So what happened? So all our year sevens are doing this. Well, I say predictably, but only predictably with the benefit of hindsight, the kids who were the most creative, the kids who did amazing kind of projects on this, and I'm talking, we had timelines going on, we had toilet breaks where they were going to still try and sing whilst they're on the toilet, 
we had kids saying I could probably survive on five hours sleep for this month. So if I set my alarm for this time, I can get through five verses of jingle, all this kind of stuff. There was some graphs going on. It was beautiful. What kids were doing that was the top set kids. It was the kids who had the knowledge. It was the kids who could draw upon all their past experiences of mathematics. They were flipping love in this. And there were some beautiful things. What about the, the lower set kids, the, the lower achieving students? Well, they really, really struggled. And I'll be honest with you, I don't think they enjoyed it at all. Now, parents were getting involved. Grannies and granddads were chipping in. So there's some merit on this. And this will be a wider point out I just want to make in a second about the diet of experiences that kids should have in their mathematics education. Because I think this is a, something I've overlooked over the last few months. It was important for all students to experience this. But the kids who were higher achieving got more out of it. And I believe if I was to do that again, I think I'd still run the activity. I think I'd structure it slightly tighter, but I would do it at a point where I had explicitly taught all students in year seven skills that would allow them to access that project more. So I would assess their understanding of timetables. I would assess their understanding of kind of mental arithmetic and, and calculating times and sharing and all that 24 hour clock, all that kind of stuff. Stuff that I'm not relying on them being able to kind of either teach themselves or, or draw upon incomplete or, or, or faulty knowledge. And I think then they would get more out of it. So, so to answer your question, I'm a great believer in creativity. And just to go back to the point I was making before, I interviewed Tom Sherrington for, for my podcast just a couple of days ago, in fact. And he had a really useful analogy that has been swimming around in my head for the last kind of 48 hours since the interview. And that is he kind of sees things as a vitamin pill, the experience kids get in mathematics as a vitamin pill, where you get things like creativity or opportunities to be creative and inquiries and investigations and group work and project work. They are key components of a student's experience that we are almost obliged to give them as teachers, but they don't need that much of it. This is, this is his view, and I'm going to put my nail my calls to the mast or whatever the, 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 the phrase is. That's definitely not it, but it's something like that. <laughs> I, I don't think they need much of it, but they need some of it. So if I just, let's take that year seven class. If you'd have asked me this question six months ago, I'd have said, well, I'm going to teach them explicitly all the way through. We'll do intelligent practice, purposeful practice. Maybe we'll do some problem solving and stuff. But if you'd have said to me, would you do that project on Jingle Bells again? I'd be like, no, because there's no educational validity in it. Now, if you ask me, I'd say to myself, well, actually, yeah, it's probably worth giving them a little dose of something like that. Because firstly, there's a chance that some kids, and I think more kids, if I've taught them explicitly beforehand, will absolutely thrive. Like some of my kids, they still talk about that now. They're a year 11 now, and they're still chatting about that project. They're flicking loving it. How many times they could sing Jingle Bells whilst having a wee on the toilet. They're still, they're still chatting about it now. And I want kids to experience that, but I want them to get the most out of it. So to answer your question, I think, and I hope I'm answering it here, I think creativity is fundamentally important, but we've got to give our kids the opportunity to thrive in that creativity. And creativity, without the knowledge underpinning it, I just think is frustration, if that makes sense. I'd like to pick up on that because it makes a lot of sense to me. I really struggle, though, with the question of knowing when students are ready to use those skills. So if I, I'm trying to remember the name correctly, but I believe when you were chatting to Dylan William recently, he talked about the work of Hugh Burkhart. Yes. And how Hugh suggested that students can't do modeling with any mathematics 
that they've learned within the last two years. They can only use mathematics from prior to that. So I'm just trying to I'm just trying to meld that with what you were talking then about explicitly scaffolding the skills up to up to that project. And I'm wondering to what extent you feel that students would be able to, in a short time, acquire those skills, especially the the bottom end, end of the class in terms of achievement, in order to apply it in, in such a context? Yeah, it's a tricky one. I, I read that too. Um, I think you tweeted, Dylan, didn't you, about it uh, recently, Ollie? Yeah, it's one of those things that I find, I think I find it quite hard to believe, actually, because for me, it would be, so I would teach it explicitly. And again, if you want to later on, we can dig into it, exactly what that looks like. But I, I would teach it explicitly in a, in a hopefully a cognitively accessible way to kids. I would then make sure we develop it via kind of purposeful practice and so on. And then I think as long as I leave it a little while and I assess it either through a diagnostic question, low stakes quiz or something like that, I think I can then actually use the project as another means of kind of testing retrieval, but in, in a different context. So I think I'm, I'm all right with that, Ollie, to be honest with you. I don't think I need to leave it any kind of big length of time or anything. I'm happy to use that kind of moment of, of, of create opportunity for creativity to, to see if they can use that skill in the context. I think the big difference for me, though, is, and again, I know this sounds a little bit harsh, but there won't be as many of the as the of those opportunities because there's a potential for things to go wrong during those projects. There's potential for kids to be thinking about and working on loads of different things, making loads of mistakes and loads of misconceptions. But I do believe it's an important experience for kids to have. But I don't think they need to have too much of that experience because I would rather have a more controlled way of, of testing retrieval or getting them that purposeful practice and so on. I don't know if that answers your question, but I'm happy to keep those projects in. And I'm happy that their kids will be using some of those skills and gain and experiencing creativity and all this, these other things. But yeah, I don't think I'd do too many of them if, if that makes sense. Mm. I'm aware that we've got lots of listeners of the podcast who aren't math teachers. So I was wondering, to what extent do you think that your views on this are shaped by the fact that you you are focused on mathematics? Or, or do you think it's – I know you speak with a lot of people like, for example, Adam Boxer or Harry Fletcher Wood who work – in areas outside of mathematics, to what extent do you think this is math specific or, or, sh- or should it be shared more widely? Yeah, good, good question. When I, um, so another confession here is I hate, I hate whole school training. This is a terrible thing to say, but whenever I go into a school kind of whole set, a whole inset where all teachers from different departments are there, I'm immediately skeptical when I hear kind of generic teaching strategies or approaches. So when I wrote the book, I wrote it with a secondary school teacher in mind, high school teacher. And even, I don't think I'd even go kind of post-16. I'm thinking kind of age 11 to age 16, teachers who were teaching those kind of students. And I purposely thought to myself, right, primary school maths teachers, I'm not sure if they're going to get anything out of this whatsoever because I am no expert whatsoever in primary school. Teachers of kind of SEN students or students who've been excluded, I've no idea because it's not my area of expertise at, at all, but certainly not teachers of other subjects because who the flipping heck am I to say whether this is any use whatsoever to a history teacher, an English teacher, possibly a science teacher with some aspects of the kind of modeling and stuff like that, but for extended writing and all that kind of thing, God only knows. But 
it's kind of blown me away a little bit that firstly the primary audience uh, primary maths teachers seem to have kind of really bought into it and in fact claire seeley who's a, a don't know if you're aware of her ollie but she's a teacher i respect tremendously a kind of leading light in primary education mathematics specific well into a cognitive load theory and all this kind of stuff she's actually writing a series of six blog posts about my book about how the ideas can transfer direct to primary school so that's just that's just blown me away for one but other teachers seem to be on board. So like Harry Fletcher Ward, history teacher, he thinks that one, it's given him an understanding of how mathematics is taught. And I think that's useful. Like if I knew how English was taught, I just have a better understanding of my kids' experiences because the kids who are taught English are my kids who I'm trying to teach maths to. So I think it's it's important in that sense for teachers to understand how other subjects deliver it. But I think some of the principles are pretty generic. Like I think cognitive load theory, I think transfers across. I think Bjork's desirable difficulties and transfers across. I think even the worked examples, if I'm entirely honest with you, the silent teacher approach followed by Doug Lemoff's show call, I think that transfers across. Now, problem solving, purposeful practice, I'm not so sure. Formative assessment possibly transfers across, but yeah, my feedback's been there's there's certainly far more than than I thought. But again, I'm I always put my hands up here, Ollie. I've no flicking idea about any other subjects outside of my little narrow, cozy secondary maths domain. Mm. I was I was thinking about that question, especially because I've got a friend Beth who's often often involved in the podcast discussions, and she did a bit of a world tour of alternative schools and schools who focus exclusively on project project based learning and things like that. And I was talking to her about a, a lot of this stuff, and she said. Many of these schools who have a real focus on project-based learning and don't have kind of year levels and things like that, many of them still teach one subject explicitly, and that subject is mathematics. So I think perhaps there is something about mathematics, the way knowledge is structured within mathematics, that lends itself very well to kind of explicit instruction and really conscious building of these schemas of knowledge to facilitate more flexible use of them later on. I think you're right, Ali, but then again, you'll hear plenty of people saying the opposite, right? So you'll hear plenty. So Andrew Blair, who I've had on the podcast, um, Inquiry, all into Inquiry Maths, will be the complete opposite, that it will be taught in a very kind of unstructured, kind of just kids being taught things at the point when they're ready. And he'll make the point that there'll be periods of explicit instruction within there, but so much more of the ownership of how that lesson's going to go is on the kid's shoulders. So again, I don't think it's cut and dried that everybody accepts that math should be explicitly taught. But again, it's certainly, I'm certainly of the belief. And again, whatever that thing about nailing your colours, I I wish I hadn't brought it up again then, actually. I need to learn that one for for my next (laughs) next time. I'm going to say when I'm teaching a concept for the first time, I'm explicit instruction all the way. Mm. And I guess it's not just to do with domain here, where there's also context. So I was literally listening yeah. to your Tom Sherrington podcast on the way to interview you today. And he was talking about how in one school, he it was a like a private school or a quite wealthy school. Yeah, grammar school. That's right. Yeah. yeah. He had an activity with electrical leads and he said, okay, everyone just take some leads, build some circuits, then we'll have a discussion about them. And it was a fantastic lesson. He moved to yeah. a lower SES or a, a, a lower achieving school, tried the same activity. It fell flat on its face. So, you know, there's domain yep. co- domain considerations, context considerations, many things like that. I think you're I think you're right. And just just very quickly on that all, I think the the kind of mass equivalent to that is is an an open-ended investigation. I've done things like all the classics, walking upstairs, palm borders, or diagonals of rectangles, all my favorite activities. I've given these to kind of certain classes, top set classes, and they flip in love them. I've just dished them out. And all I've done the whole lesson is wander around from table to table, 
And I've just had a great time just talking to kids about the things they've found, the areas, that the avenues that they're pursuing. And I, I remember vividly one time just standing in the middle of this class when kids are just working around this. And I just thought, I can't believe they're paying me for this. Like I would pay to be in this room because I'm flipping loving this. But then I'll give it, I'll give that same kind of thing out in another class. And kids are like, well, what am I supposed to do here? Like, what, what's, what's going on with this? And I'm convinced that there's, well, I'm convinced that 90% of the difference there is knowledge and experience of success. I think that's an important thing that, that often gets overlooked. That success builds the confidence that kids need to think, actually, I'm going to have a go and I'm going to pursue this line of inquiry. And if it doesn't work, who cares? I'm going to pursue another one. But also kind of the culture and stuff uh, within the school, the experiences that kids are used to. I've made the mistake of just dropping one of these onto a class and like, they've never seen anything like it before. And it's just an absolute disaster. But yeah, I think that happens in maths um, as well. So yeah, I definitely related to Tom's story there about the circuit boards. Mm. And I guess I should point out here that when we're not lumping students in boxes saying private school kids can do this and public school kids oh, can God, do this. No. It's, it's, it's all about prior knowledge, Absolutely. prior experiences and things like that. And in, in all schools, there will be students of, who will benefit from all types of instructional approaches. It's like a, le like a legal disclaimer there, Ollie. Like the lawyers are on Yeah, well, I, yeah. Well, I, I kind of, I felt like some, some of the things that came out there could have been interpreted in that way. So I just wanted to be clear it, about it. Got it. In your book, you talk about boundary examples. And I wanted to bring that concept in here about skills. Because I, I picked up before when I asked you about skills, you said, you first said all skills. And then you said, oh, actually, not all skills. Mm. So I was wondering, do you have in your mind any skills which aren't as domain specific and which we should be explicitly teaching students? Yeah, good question. So let's go back to the draw picture. So draw picture is a useful skill to teach kids for a fairly decent range of, of maths questions, trigonometry, Pythagoras, angle questions, bearing questions, quite a lot of the geometry, properties of shapes, stuff like that, lend themselves well to draw pictures. So that will be something, but I would teach it explicitly. I wouldn't just assume that kind of kids are going to kind of develop this skill. And it will be one of those things where I will model it and then I will make an explicit reference to say, a skill I have used in this question is draw a picture. But again, I'll go back to my point before, I'll, they can't draw that picture unless they have got this the knowledge to understand how to draw that picture, if that makes sense. But there are, Ed Sample, who I interviewed, he calls this, I think it's, I forgot what he calls it. It's like, learned skills or learned techniques or something like that. But the things he actually explicitly believes can kind of transfer across various different areas in maths. I think they're useful to focus on because you get more bang for your buck with those. If you can get kids good at that, it's going to actually transfer to across lots of different lots of different areas. So I think I think that would be that would be one example if, if that makes sense. Okay, I'm a little bit puzzled because before you use the example mm. of drawing a picture, as, yeah, as yeah, yeah. students won't know what to draw a picture of, and I've definitely seen some, yeah, like yeah, yeah, I said, yeah. draw a picture and a student did like a, an art picture. It was quite beautiful, mm -hmm. but it had nothing to do with the mathematics. Sure. But, you, but you've just used the example of draw a picture as more of a generic skill. Could you go into a bit more detail? Yeah, I, I can. Yeah, I wasn't very clear. As I'm speaking now, I'm thinking I don't even know what I'm saying myself here. But I, I think I've got me. I think I've got me head around it now. So let's let's take something that I don't think kind of transfers across all that well. So let's take something like solve a simpler example, right? I think that is something that doesn't 
that isn't that useful to keep explicitly saying to students because I don't think it transfers across that many different topics. So solve a simple example. I think that's more the kind of thing that you kind of pick up implicitly the more problems you solve. Whereas draw a picture once kids have gotten the knowledge is actually something that I'm going to say, yeah, this is actually a useful thing for you to do quite regularly for these different types of questions. As I say, Pythagoras, trigonometry, all that kind of thing. Because I just think that skill, whilst it isn't going to work for absolutely everything, and whilst kids aren't going to be able to use it unless they've got domain-specific knowledge, I think there's enough mileage in it across topics that actually I can make a fairly big deal about it. Whereas a lot of the other skills, I wouldn't be making a big deal about them. Does, does that make a bit more sense? Yeah, with you now. With you now. Sticking on skills, what about skills like study skills? Do you think that's something that we could or should be teaching students? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is very pertinent at the moment. So we we just had, this week, we've just finished our GCSEs and, and A-levels are just kind of wrapping up. So A-levels are what, what the kids do at age 18. And I've certainly made the mistake in the past, Ollie, of assuming kids can revise well, assuming kids know what they're doing and, and getting the most out of the time. And, and I've had kids who say, I was revising for four hours last night. And they come in, they're flipping useless. They, they don't have a clue what they're doing. And that's because they've not been effective with their time. And I think Here's something that I think is quite interesting. I think we can tell kids till we're blue in the face effective ways to revise, and it doesn't make a single bit of difference. So you get all the things like the. I'm a big fan of the learning scientists, and they've got a wonderful kind of series of, I think it's six strategies that kids can use to learn to revise effectively. And you've got all the classics in there. You've got kind of self quizzing, dual coding, all these, all these brilliant, brilliant, brilliant strategies. And I've sat through assemblies on these things. I've given flipping assemblies on these things. And the kids are like, yeah, whatever, sir. And then, you know, at night, they're going to be highlighting the notes and all this, reading through things, all these things that are absolutely useless for them to remember it. I think the only way you get kids good at studying something effectively is to show them the power of it and get them to experience the power of it themselves. And for me, a really, really, really nice way of doing this is via regular low stakes quizzing and particularly the low stakes quizzing where you tell the kids the, exa- the kind of questions that are be com- coming up on the, the, the next test. So the, t- the kids go in knowing the exact topics that they're going to be tested on. And if you can show the kids that actually the more regularly we do these tests and the more regularly that actually the, the night or the two nights before you prepare for these by self-quizzing yourself versus highlighting, then their scores just tick up, tick up, tick up. And they actually see it for themselves. Yeah, actually, this regular quizzing, this self-quizzing myself, this actually is a, a far more effective strategy than I've been doing before. And that's something that kind of grows organically between the class because you'll get some kids who their scores aren't improving at all. And word gets round like, I actually revised for an hour last night. Yeah, I'm still on four out of 10. How did you revise? Well, I just looked through my notes and I read my notes on fractions and all this kind of stuff. Why, how did you revise? Well, I revised by, I copied down the five questions that we did in class, but I just copied the questions down. I tried to answer them and then I checked whether my answers were right. How long did that take you? Well, that took me 10 minutes. I was flipping revising for an hour. So I think, I think kids need to see the benefits, feel the benefits themselves from it. And if you can or create conditions throughout the year that show kids the effective way to revise, then that's the way to get them studying effectively. And Ollie, like you've changed my life, Ollie, right? With your flipping method, 
for reviewing um, the the kind of quizzes and stuff you give your kids, those little the cards where they create the question on one side, then on the other side of it, they write down the topic area that it was, the mistake they made, and then the model solution. What a way to get kids revising effectively that is because they're building their own bespoke set of revision cards. That's how you get kids studying effectively, not by kind of banging on at them about assemblies and telling them highlighting's rubbish. You've got to show them it's rubbish, if that makes sense. Mm. One more question on skills, I think. This is, you asked me about my views on the, the distinction between biologically primary and biologically secondary knowledge when we had a chat a couple of months ago. And I talked about skills such as teamwork, for example. And I, I talked about how I thought that was something that could, could be taught. And I'm sure you're aware that many of the hardliner kind of knowledge advocates would suggest that all these things are bi- biologically primary i.e., you know, mm. evolutionarily, we just pick them up. Therefore, we don't have to teach them. Where, where do you stand mm. on, on this debate? Yeah, it's, it's a dodgy area, this Olympics. Th- things are changed, seem to be changing all the time on this. And um, I think the safest bet is to assume that the vast majority of things are biologically secondary. I don't think there's any advantage to assuming that kids will acquire things naturally. Um, and it's kind of a win-win situation because if you're wrong on that bet, they're kind of getting them naturally and you're kind of explicitly telling them as well. Whereas if you if you were on the other side of it and just assume that they're going to get it naturally, well, if they don't, you're kind of a little bit screwed. So I think that they can. I think there are certain aspects of working effectively as a group or teamwork, to, to take your example, and, and certain areas of mathematics that possibly could be biologically primary or that kids could acquire themselves through speaking to each other and all that kind of thing. But how flipping long is it going to take? And what could go wrong in the intervening period? There's, I don't want incomplete knowledge. I don't want misconceptions forming. They're hard in, it's hard enough to stop them conforming yourself when you're explicitly teaching it. So again, I would always err on the side of assuming things need to be explicitly taught, if that makes sense. And if they don't, it's a bonus, but I'm, I'm not taking the risk. We're on the same page on that one then. <laughs> Speaking of explicit instruction, one, one, one part of your book really interested me. So I'm just going to read it out here and then let you respond to it. What you wrote was, I used to believe that there was no right way to teach. At a number of presentations I have delivered to teachers across the country, I have uttered the phrase, just as every child learns differently, <laughs> and we must cater to that, so every teacher should be allowed to teach differently. This once prompted a standing ovation. I am now no longer convinced I agree with either part of that sentiment. So what do you now think is the right way to teach? Yeah, for that, it's a bigger miss, Ollie. I completely stand by that. and I know it's a controversial view, this. Let me put it this way. So whenever I interviewed Danny Quinn, head of Michaela School, and Greg Ashman, they're both head of, head of departments uh, within mathematics, they spoke about centrally planned lessons. So they would plan lessons for their departments. And I would hear that and I would think that alarm bells were going off in my head because I've always been a great believer that teachers should be allowed freedom to teach however they want to teach. And we've kind of got assessments at the end of it and that, that everybody does. And that's kind of almost your check. But the more I think about it, Holly, the more I'm, I'm leaning more towards not necessarily centrally planned, but that there are certainly definite practices and approaches that I think 
beat other approaches in specific circumstances. So there's, there's two aspects of this that, that I'll talk about, and hopefully that this answers your question. The first is, and again, Tom Sherrington talks about this, what he calls a safe bet. He says there are certain things that there's lots of uncertainty in teaching. There's so many different variables. God, you know, it's very hard to isolate what's effective and what isn't. But there are certain safe bets, things that we can be pretty sure are positive. So within a lesson or a sequence of lessons, retrieval practice would be one. That, that is a pretty safe bet that getting kids to retrieve information, not just from last lesson, but last week, last month, that's probably going to be beneficial for them. So I, I completely agree with that. Linked into that, spacing out content, not teaching everything in, in batches and then not, not revisiting it until the exam. That is probably going to be a pretty safe bet. And I would batch into that as well, uh, sorry, chuck into the mix as well, some form of explicit modeling, showing kids what success looks like, what it looks like when an expert sets something out. I think that is a pretty safe bet. And one of the safe bets that I think is, again, not, you can't really argue against it, is some of the, some of the takeaways from cognitive load theory, some of the, redu right, the redundancy effects. That's a pretty safe bet. It's probably not going to be a good idea to have a load of text on the screen and you talking over the top of it. That's probably not going to be a good idea. Dual coding. I think it's a pretty safe bet that if you have a striking image on the screen, it's better to narrate over that image than have that image with more text. It's going to be easier for, for the kids to take it in. So I think some of those are safe bets that I, 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 I think most teachers could incorporate into their lesson. What I think is more contentious, but which I have a definite view on, is when you teach something explicitly, and when you kind of bring in the kind of problem solving, discovery, open-ended elements. I used to believe that was very much up to the teacher. So some teachers would start a topic with an inquiry or an investigation and kind of hope that the main aspects of it would come to light throughout it and then do some teaching or practice after that. Whereas some teachers would teach the skills and knowledge explicitly at the start and then incorporate these Richard problem-solving activities towards the end. I am now firmly of the belief that the latter is the way to go. And I know not everybody agrees with me on this. And again, it may be my failings of, as a teacher. There may be teachers out there listening to this who think, no, you're talking absolute nonsense here. I want my kids to play around with all these different things, discover things. We'll have a big class discussion of it. And then we'll start bringing all the ideas together and take it from there. I can't do that effectively, Ollie. I've tried for many, many years. Sometimes it's worked out fine in certain classes, in certain times for certain topics, but for the vast majority, that has not been as effective as me at the start of a topic or a concept, thinking through very carefully how I'm going to introduce this, and then explicitly, as I say via works ex uh, example problem pairs, silent teacher, show call, intelligent practice, actually teaching kids that, getting them to practice, and then once they've got that level of knowledge, then they can, I believe they're in a position to really enjoy and benefit from these richer experiences. So I think that is the right way to teach. But there are a lot of people out there who do not agree with me. But that's, that's what I'm sticking with for now until I'm proven wrong. Thanks, Craig. Could you, I'm aware maybe not all listeners are aware of things like what show call means, for example. Could you give us sure. a little a quick summary of a few of these safe bets that you're talking about? Yeah, of course. So a, a good way would be just to kind of imagine we're teaching something. So let's say uh, that we are teaching 
let's go for finding the mean of a, a list of data, a classic. So let's go for that. So if I was, and actually, Ollie, I'm glad you brought this up because this is an important point to, to, to make here. A lot of teachers have criticized me because they've said, so what? You just jump into teaching the mean of a list of data cold with a worked example. And I'm like, no, not at all. Like, if you've got a way of visually conveying to kids what the mean is that can really help develop their conceptual understanding. So a lot of people like to do the mean by kind of towers of different heights and kind of leveling out these towers. So some beautiful visual representations of the mean. Then that is an absolutely brilliant way to start it off. But whenever you then go into actually teaching the procedure you want kids to follow, that's when kind of my approach kicks in with what I'm about to describe here. But because a lot of teachers, Ollie, I don't know if it's big in, big in Australia, but bar modeling and the kind of Singapore method is, is really big here, particularly in primary schools. And a lot of primary teachers have said to me, so is bar modeling wrong? Should I not be using this kind of visual approach for, for ratio multiplicative relationships? I'm like, not at all, not at all. If that's your way of getting kids to conceptually understand what then you're about to show them, then start with that. But when the procedure kicks in, when you want a way to actually get kids good at carrying out a procedure, that's when this kicks in, what I'm about to describe, if that makes sense. So, um, yeah, it, very, very simple. I'll, I'll do this really, really quick. Um, my board is split in two. Um, I have the works example on the left and I have space for your turn on the right. Your turn is blank when I initially show my board. Um, there is simply a question um, on the left-hand side of the board, the, the works example, and that's all. There's no fancy animations or colors on my board. My board looks flipping boring. My classroom looks flipping boring. I want to try and try to control attention as much as possible, focus kids' attention. And then the first thing I do is I don't have a discussion with the kids. That's a mistake I've made in the past. And a lot of teachers don't like this, Ollie, whenever I, because when I put like five numbers on the board, every fiber of my being wants to say to the class, how do you think I'll work out the mean? What do you think I should do next? And I've always done that. I've done that for 12 years. But I'll tell you why I don't do that now. Because what are the three scenarios that can happen when you ask a child, how do you work out the mean? Well, scenario one is one child puts his hand up and says it's perfectly right. What does that tell you about the rest of the class? Nothing. So that's a waste of time. Second thing that could happen is a child puts his hand up and says something completely wrong. Well, then you've got a problem because that's out there. And I used to love that as a teacher. I used to love wrong answers. So I bang them up on the board and I say, has anybody else got another answer? Yeah, I've got one. Okay, that's another wrong answer. Bang that up on the board. I'm not saying it's right or wrong at this point. Another child says it and this is the right answer, right? Bang that up on the board. So we have three different ways of doing this. Right, class, have a discussion, have a vote. Which one do you think is right? Firstly, it takes flipping ages. Secondly, the kids who are confused, if they were confused before, now they don't have a flipping clue what's going on because there's, there's three answers on the board with no idea which one's which. And the kids who knew how to do it, they're getting really pissed off here, thinking, let me just crack on with the lesson here because I know how to do this thing. And me as a teacher, I was like, convince me this, convince me this, convince me this. Oh, God, Ollie, it used to go on for ages. So that's scenario two. That's a nightmare. Scenario three is, and I've been there before here, a kid puts his hand up and they say something that's got a grain of truth in there, but it's not quite there. And I do what Doug Lamoff calls here, rounding up, where I'll say something like, Oh, I know what you're saying. You're saying this. And the kid isn't saying that at all. But I'm trying to put my words in the kid's mouth. And the, kid, the kid's like, what are you on about, sir? The rest of the kids are like, he definitely didn't say that. But in my head, oh, that's come from the child. So that's brilliant news. So I've caught that discussion completely out from when I int introduced a concept. That discussion has moved later. So that discussion 
then comes into play when I do intelligent practice. And we can talk about this later if, if you want to. Um, but that, that discussion then comes in when kids are seeing connections between problems and I'm saying, how did you know the answer to that? Then we can have a great discussion. We can have that though at a point where kids can benefit from it because they've got knowledge. I taught them something, they practice it, it's more of a level playing field, as opposed to the kid who doesn't have a clue is expected to hold a discussion with the kid who's absolutely nailed it. I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's fair on either of them. So discussion has completely gone from the start my words example. So I start without a question, asking the kids a question. I just go through a words example in silence, silent teacher. Kids aren't saying a word, I'm not saying a word. The reason I like this from a from firstly, a cognitive science or cognitive load perspective is that all kids' attention is focused just on looking at something and reading what's on the board um, as I go through the symbols and stuff. They don't have to then contend with me narrating over the top, trying to listen to my words and read. Yeah, pro problematic. So silent teacher first. And from a behavior point of view, it's ideal because I've taught plenty of classes where I'll say, right, nice and quiet, everybody. I'm going to be going through this example. And there's a couple of lads chatting at the back and the, the ropey lads. And I say to him, Josh, Aaron, what are you talking about there? Oh, we're talking about the mean of a list of data, sir. Are you? Are they flipping it? But because there's this gray area where if kids are talking about maths, it's all right, then they can get away with this kind of stuff. And kids are smart. So they're, they're absolutely loving this. Whereas now there's no gray area. You've got to shut up. You're shutting up. I'm shutting up. So I'm going through the first in absolute silence. Once I've gone through that, it takes about 10, 15 seconds. I then narrate, I narrate and annotate. That's kind of stage two of this. So that's where I've got all my writing on the board. And then I'll do things like this, Ollie. I'll say, so for example, let's take the mean of a list of uh, data. I'll say something like, um, how did I know to add these numbers together? Or how did I know to divide by six? But this is a rhetorical question. I'm asking that and I'm expecting the kids to think about it in their head. So I'll ask it, how did I know to divide by six? I'll pause. And then I'll say, I divided by six because there are six pieces of data. Now, the reason I'm not throwing that out to discussion is for the exact same reason why I don't have the discussion in the first place. Because I believe the best way to get kids to understand this is for me to explain it. But I already want them to start the process of self-explaining and reflecting. But I don't want them to, when I first started thinking about this, I thought, should I get them discussing things in pairs? But no, I, I want to try and control the development of misconceptions, if that makes sense. I, want, I firmly believe, and I know it's a controversial view this, but I firmly believe the best way for students to understand something clearly is if I explain it the way I planned out first. And it might not happen. And we'll deal with that when we come to it. If, it. if I find out there's misconceptions later down the line, we'll sort them out. But give me a shot at trying to explain it to you first. So silent teacher, narration and annotation. At that stage, then show call kicks in. So that's when I then show. I actually have, a, I actually have some, some questions here. Yeah, please. First question is, what's the benefit of, if this is your approach, what is the benefit of you writing the, the solution on the board rather than just projecting up a work solution already? Yeah, good question. So the main reason for this is I want them to see me as a mathematician think, because what I'm doing here is I'm strategic. Right. Say I just project a work solution up on the board, complete work solution. It's almost like magic. It's just appeared. Where, where the flipping eggs that come from? Whereas if I'm writing it down on the board, as I'm thinking, as I'm writing, I can pause at the key bits. So when I write, like when I've got the mean of a list of data, um, and say it's like five, eight, 13, whatever, blah, blah. I say there's six pieces of data. Once I've got the sum written down, 
I'll then pause. Then I'll put a divide and I'll pause. And then I'll tap each of the six pieces of data. Then I'll pause and then I'll put a six. So kids are seeing the thought process. So it's not just magically appeared. So they're actually seeing me think and write a solution. And that's important for me. That first stage is important. It also helps me with the pacing of it, Ollie, as well. It just means that I can, I mean, I'm in a bit more control of the process. And it also kind of just feels a bit more natural than just a work solution appearing. And I'm a great believer in the power of works examples. Um, I think I think we both are. And that works example will remain on the board and it will be in the kids' books, which is the kind of third, the third stage of this kids copying it down. But I want them to see it being created in front of their eyes, if, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And and I guess what I'd take from that is you're you're managing the cognitive load of the students by progressively revealing lines of working rather than just showing off an over, overwhelming working for the whole thing. But I'm still not entirely clear because it seems like you are explicitly, well, you're trying to make your thinking visible. And by ta- ta- yeah. tapping the six numbers prior to writing the yeah. six on the denominator, I'm not as yet convinced that that's you know, fundamentally better than for me to say, now I'm going to divide by a number. That number comes from, you know, the number of numbers that we started with. So I'm going to put a six here. So apart from the fact that there's not people calling out and it's clear that when we're talking, when we're classes, not talking, is there something fundamentally better about the silent teacher approach? Yeah, well, let let me try and get you on board here, Ollie, with with two things, fingers crossed. The first is, as I say, I think it's more cognitively demanding than it needs to be if I present some if I'm if I'm writing something down and narrating over the top at the same time. I don't think I don't think that's a very helpful thing for, for kids to see first time around. So that's why I don't speak whilst I'm doing it. And as I say uh, before, I want to control it. As well as you said, I want to control the cognitive load by doing it line by line. But I think there's a, there's another important point here, and this kind of feeds through my whole approach to this. Is it's giving kids different opportunities to understand things, what's going on. So the first opportunity to understand why I divide by six is when I do that tapping, pause, divide by six. That's opportunity one. I'm not expecting all kids to get it at that stage. Maybe I'm only expecting three or four to get it, but there's an opportunity to get it. Opportunity two comes when I'm then doing my narrating and I say then, why did I divide by six? There's opportunity two. Opportunity Three will come in whenever kids are then writing, copying down their solution, the work solution into their book. There's a third opportunity to see where that divide by six comes from. The fourth opportunity is then when they do the related worked example and they're going down and trying to associate what they're working out with the one that I've just gone through. So I'm trying to give them multiple opportunities to get it, Ollie, if that makes sense. And I think I can do that via the, the, the silent teacher. Hi, Craig. It's Wendy here. Hi, Wendy. I may have um, read this from you, but I thought another reason why the silent example was so helpful was because when you narrate something, it takes you longer to go through that example. And the students think, wow, that's going to take me ages to be able to get that because it's so time consuming. Where you do it in silence, you're just working at the sort of natural pace and the kids feel like it's more achievable. Yeah. Is that something I read from you? (laughs) <laughs> or heard from you. I'd, I'd love you to have read, read that from me, Wendy, because that's another great point here. So yeah, that, that could make it into addition too. <laughs> that, that's brilliant, man. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Because one of the critiques of this approach that I get from teachers is, God, this must take flipping ages. But it's miles quicker going through this than doing that discussion thing where it's all kicking off left, right and centre. And as I say, I give kids, I reckon, four opportunities to understand this. But there's another point related to that, Wendy, as well. And this is one but once I actually did make in the book. And that's one thing that teachers really like about this silent teacher approach is when you've got kids who have English as an additional language, or I have a lot of teachers who teach autistic students and say that they find it firstly hard to understand when a teacher's explaining something and they've got to follow something on the board. So trying to process kind of reading the English and listening to the English is difficult. So that's one thing. But they find it even more hard. And I've, uh, teachers have said to me, impossible whenever discussions are happening, because it's very hard. It's hard enough for one of these kids who isn't fluent in English or who has other issues to understand one person speaking. And then whenever you've got then another kid chips in, another kid chips in, another kid chips in, using different dialects, different intonations, different languages, different colloquialisms, it's really flipping hard for these kids to follow what's going on. So if nothing else, it's those students who benefit the most from this silent teacher approach. And it's their first real opportunity to get it. And like I, every time somebody tweets me about silent teacher, I'll take a little clipping of it and kind of put it in presentations and stuff. And one of my favorite ones, and this is from a child thanked their teacher after silent uh, after they first did silent teacher and they said it helped me concentrate better and for me that's it right like if you've got a kid saying actually now i can concentrate on this why why wouldn't you do it so yeah i'm i'm silent teacher all the way and i should say i'm doing this with year sevens i'm doing it with year 13s i'm not not it's not as if it's working with one class and it's not working with another. I'm doing it with ropey classes Friday afternoon after lunch. I'm doing it with ideal classes first thing in the morning. Like I'm, I'm doing it with everybody. I'm obsessed with this silent teacher. I'm glad I said yet before, Craig, because I'll, I'll be giving this a go on Monday. You've, you've convinced me. <laughs> Actually, we interrupted you then. You were, you were halfway through talking about how you run, how, how you run your lesson. Oh yeah, just just to very quickly do it. So stage three, um, and I think I think you you queried this, Ollie, and I can't remember whether it was in these questions or or when or whether it was when we spoke. But stage three is for kids to copy down my work solution, and a, a lot of teachers have said, "Why bother? Why bother with that?" And I know in a lot of schools, so Michaela would be one. And um, kind of what's in students' workbooks isn't that important. Whereas um, in a lot of schools, it's they've got rules on what you underline and lesson objectives and all this kind of stuff. But for me, it's not about that. The re there's two reasons I want kids to copy down that work solution. And it takes two minutes and time's precious. So those two minutes I could be using for something else. But I've made a conscious decision that actually this is important for them to copy down it's for two reasons. One is it means that they then have a worked example that they can refer back to for the rest of the lesson or their homework, low stakes quiz, whenever it is in the future, they've got that. And that's important for me. But secondly, it goes back to the point I made before about success. I want kids to experience writing correct mathematics. And it sounds pathetic because it's obvious they're only getting it right because they're copying it down from the board. But I believe there's something in there because some kids can go through an entire maths lesson and not get anything right. And I know it's an awful thing to say, but I'm guaranteeing here that actually they're getting something right at the start of that lesson by copying down some correct mathematics. And it also, there's kind of a third aspect to this, that you get those kids, because a lot of teachers say to me, where on earth is the differentiation in this approach? This is an absolute nightmare. And Ollie, don't get me started on differentiation, because we will be here all night on, on differentiation here. But I used to mess up differentiation big time. I'll just tell you this very, very quickly. For me, differentiation... <laughs> I'm glad we got you started. <laughs> and again... 
yeah, honestly, differentiation. I like like a Pavlovian response to this. I just go off on a rant on this one because I was obsessed with differentiation for years. And for me, differentiation was every time I saw a child showing a hint of understanding at a task, whip that task off them and give them some kind of extreme maths because I, I wasn't pushing them enough. And I was knackered. Oh, less I'm just whipping things off, banging another sheet down. Oh, God, it was all kicking off. And and again, I was making some really bad decisions there because I was basing decisions on performance, which we know is an issue, distinguishing learning from performance, but also kids' judgment. Kids say to me, yeah, I find this easy, so I'm going to actually do so. I need something more challenging. And I think that can be problematic as well. Whereas with this, every child, every child is doing the same thing. And teachers are like, well, what about the kid who can work out the mean of five numbers? You're really holding them back. Well, all right, maybe I'm holding them back. But firstly, I'm only holding them back for a couple of minutes because that's taken me to do this. And I'll tell you what, that's a damn sight better than holding them back for 15 minutes while some discussion's going on left, right, and center. And they're getting really annoyed saying, just let me get on with some work. But the other thing is, I reckon I want to make sure that kids are setting these things out right. Because just because a child can work out the mean in some kind of quick way, well, what about whenever they come to work out the mean from a frequency table or a group frequency table or when they get on to do standard deviation? Actually, the way I want them setting out the mean, I've planned out because it's going to build upon, it's going to enable me to build a solid foundation on all the higher level maths they do. And that's particularly the case in algebra. You get some kids solving linear equations in some absolutely horrendous ways. Chain side, chain sign, flipping flow diagrams, all kicking off. I want control over that because I want to build in a really solid algebraic foundation. So that's why I get kids to copy it down. Success, experience success, be able to refer to a worked example and because I want it set out in a particular way. So that's why I think that third part of the process is, is super, super, super important. Should I just quickly tell you the rest of it? All? Please I can do. do. I can do Please that do. quick. Yeah. So kids, kids are working through that and then I'm wandering around the class and I'm doing what Doug Lemoff called show call. Now, the mistake I used to make here, Ollie, and I don't know if you've been there with this one, is whenever kids are working something out, I'll then come to the board and I'll say something like, right, who wants to come up and show me how they do this solution? Who wants to go through this solution at the board? Um, or when I was a bit fancier, maybe I'd get some kind of, I'd mess around with getting the iPad and getting kids to write the solution out and stuff like that. There's two problems, well, three problems with that approach. Problem number one, it takes a while because kids have got to come to the front and then it's another kind of minute or so writing something down that they've already written. So it's, a, it's inefficient use of time. Well, there's two other issues. One is what about the kid? And I've been there before. I'll say, Jenny, come to the front, come to the front, show us what you do. And Jenny's like, I don't want to, sir. I really don't want to. I'm like, come on, Jenny, come to the front. And it's flipping awkward because something could be going on. Jenny's either sh Jenny's shy or something could be going on with Jenny. And I'm then, well, what do I do? Do I persist with this now? Or do I just kind of cut my losses? And it's flipping awkward. And poor Jenny, she, the last thing she wants to do is come to the front. So that's one issue. But then you've got the other flip side to that. I've got Callum. Sir, I'll come up. Callum's got his hand up. He wants to come up because he wants to put on a show. Callum's coming to the front. Oh, I want to write with my green pen today, sir, not my red pen. Oh, I've dropped my pen, Bob. A bit of stand-up comedy. And again, that's derailing the lesson. So put that out. And instead, using Doug Lemov's show call. So show call is the flipping simplest technique ever. So what I'm doing there is, it's just an efficient, effective way of getting kids work in front of other kids. So I'm going around, and I like the idea. I, I use Google Drive, but I know you've got different, different approaches for it, Ollie. So I'll take a photo with my phone. Um, of the, yeah, photo with my phone of kids' work. I'll be logged into Google Drive on my computer. 
And then I know that when I go back to the front of the class, I can just call up an example of kids' work and we can talk about it. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll be on the lookout for interesting misconceptions. So if I see an interesting misconception, I'll bang that up on the board and we can have a discussion about it. And notice the discussion comes at this stage because this is the point where I've taught some kids some knowledge. And if a misconception has become apparent, now I need to nail it. Or, well, and in addition to that, if I see a beautifully presented piece of work, that's going up on the board because that's what success looks like. And I need kids to see what success looks like and ideally be created by one of them, not, not from one of me. So that show call, and that for me is flipping powerful. And if you do it Google Drive, or I know your, your approach using a different app, you've then got a back catalog of interesting examples of kids' work that you can use in future lessons, professional development, departmental meetings, all kind of bang it in a book. That's why I wish I'd been doing this for years. I could have filled my book with pictures and not had to write as much. It would, would have been absolutely ideal. So that show call, and then the final part of it is then the practice that kids happen and the kids do after that. And that's intelligent practice. You're using variation theory, which I literally could talk to you for about five days on Ollie. But that, that's, that's my process for that anyway. Thanks for sharing, Craig. And it was great to get a little bit extra detail than what, what's in the book as well. All right. The next thing I was really keen to talk about was diagnostic questions because there's something, you've got a whole website on them. <laughs> yeah. There's something you're, you're pretty passionate about. And I just... I'd like to dig into them in a little bit more detail. So for, just for listeners right at the outset, could you give us a bit of a summary of what diagnostic questions are? Yeah, sure. So I was introduced to these by Dylan William. Like I call him the godfather of formative assessment. Absolute, absolute hero of mine. And I went on it on a course, God, it must be about six or seven years ago now, Ali. And it was on formative assessment. And one of the strategies he put forward was what he calls hinge questions. And the idea behind a hinge question, which I call diagnostic questions, is it a question that you ask in a lesson, and I tend to either ask them at the start, the middle, or the end of the lesson, but the key is that the response given by the students then dictates where you take the lesson from there. And you might think, well, that's just any question, isn't it? But what's special about a diagnostic question is it's not just the case that kids either get these questions right or wrong. They either get them right or they get them wrong for a very specific reason. And it's the reason that kids get these wrong that that, that then informs the teacher how best to give them help, if that makes sense. So I, I can give you a very, very quick example if, if, if it helps. Please do, yeah. Okay, so if you picture, I'll, I'll do a really, really obvious one. So if you picture a rectangle with a base of, now watch me get the numbers wrong on this, Ollie. Get, get the calculator out just in case here. If you picture a rectangle with a base of seven and a height, so that's a bad start, base of 10 and a height of seven, and you may say something like, what's the area of that rectangle? And answer A will be 70 centimeters squared, which would be the correct answer. Answer B will be 17. So you can learn from 17 there that they know it's something to do with the base and the height, but actually they've added the numbers instead of multiplying. Answer C would be 34, which would tell you that they've confused the concept of area with perimeter. So that may be a literacy issue that they may have there. Our answer C would be, this will be interesting, 35 centimeters, which is half the area which may tell you that actually they've confused the process or the formula for working out the area of a rectangle with that of working out the area of a triangle. And, and I remember one of my student teachers I was working with wrote this question and she, she included that 35. And I said, are you joking me? She called Erica. I said, are you joking me, Erica? No kid is ever going to say that. 
But she was convinced because she thought that kids get told so many times that to work out the area triangle, you do base times psi and Harvard, they're just flipping Harvard and everything going. And indeed, loads of kids were like, yeah, base times psi, Harvard, 35. So the point from that is in that one, asking that one question and getting kids to vote with their fingers, one finger for A, two for B, three for C, four for D, and then doing some questioning, which we can dig into a little bit later if you want to. I can not just learn who can do it and who can't do it, but I can identify specific misconceptions. And knowledge of those misconceptions means that what, wherever I choose to take that lesson, or however I choose to help those kids, I'm just going to be that bit better informed than I would have been if I just know that a kid can't work out the air of a rectangle. So that, that's why I love diagnostic questions. Hi again, it's Wendy. Hey, Wendy. I've heard you speak about like students rating their confidence on questions. And I was just, as you were talking about that, I was thinking it's so valuable to know how confident is a student that it's half base times height. And I'm just, and I love the use of the fingers. They've got them with them everywhere. But maybe like if a student indicated how confident they were with their answer by like showing how much of the finger they'd liked. Oh, that seems inappropriate. Um, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like just because I think it's so important that if a kid's super confident that it's half base times height, it's very different from a student who's like, oh, I, it could be 35. So I don't know if that's something. What do you think of that? Maybe. Wendy, I flipping love it. And this is this is the dream. This is the dream going forward. So myself and Simon, who built the Diagnostic Questions website, and I should say for listeners, it's diagnosticquestions.com. It's all completely free. There's 33,000 math questions on there or something like that. So when we built this three years ago or four years ago, we very early on said we want an indication of confidence in there for your exact same reason, because a child choosing D based on type divided by two, who is 100% certain of it, is a very different kettle of fish to a child who's like, oh, I don't know whether it's any of them, so I'm just going to plump for D. And whenever we first came up with this idea, we both thought, me and Simon, both thought it was a nice idea, but we didn't think it was that kind of groundbreaking. But I'll tell you what, the more I read, the more I am convinced that getting a measure of confidence when kids answer anything, whether it's a diagnostic question, low stakes quiz, questioning class, whatever it is, is so, so informative and so important. So again, I mentioned this in the book, but it's the hypercorrection effect. And it's I think this is I think this is the next big thing. I keep banging on about this, but I don't think anyone's as excited as I am about this. I tried to get Dylan William excited. Like he introduced it to me. Even he's not that excited about it. And all I'm chatting about left, right, and center. In fact, Holly, that tattoo, I might just get a hypercorrection effects on, on, on the forehead <laughs> or something. So I need more people speaking about this. So the hypercorrection effect says that an error made in high confidence leads to a greater leap in learning or gain in learning than an error made when you're in low confidence if you're not so sure about it. So if a child indicates that they're 100% sure that the answer is D to that rectangle, base times height divided by two, and you show them that it's not D, that's likely to, and again, whatever terminology you want to use, I call it kind of a bigger cognitive shock. It's going to be like, whoa, I was I was pretty sure about that. And now actually it's not. And if you can then follow that up with an explanation of why it's wrong, that is so flipping powerful, as opposed to a child who's like, I'm not that sure anyway. I'm just going to put it down as D. It doesn't have that big an impact. So to take this a step further, and I think I, myself and Ollie spoke about this, but I'll just, I just say it very quickly. One thing I do with all kind of classwork now, when it, just before I put the answers up on the board, I say to kids, just put a little score out of 10 to tell me how confident you are about each question. And that serves two purposes. The first is a kind of unforeseen consequence. And that is, it actually makes kids check their work because I don't think there are three words that have a as little effect on kids' heads than check your work. They're like, yeah, whatever, sir, of course I'll check it. Like, in one ear, out the other. But when you say, put a score of confidence out of 10, 
it actually makes them go back over their work and think, oh, question one, oh yeah. And actually they end up spotting little mistakes. But the bigger effect is that hypercorrection effect. Because then when I project the answers up on the board, the first thing I say to kids is, start with the questions you got wrong that you gave the highest confidence scores to. Because they're the biggest wins. If you've got kids who were certain about something, got it wrong, that's where your real learning is going to take place in that moment. So yeah, Wendy, I'm all over that. I absolutely love that. And hopefully at some point fairly soon, I would love it. So on diagnostic questions on the website, whenever kids vote A, B, C, D on their phones or tablets or whatever, they also have to indicate confidence, whether it's a score out of 10 or a smiley face, a thumb or something like that. Because yeah, that, that's, that's powerful. That's really powerful. Speaking of power, with great power comes great responsibility. And I'm wondering, <laughs> I'm wondering what you do. I like it. I'm wondering what you do, Craig. For example, you're there, you've got your diagnostic question. You've got to use your thumbs or your plickers or whatever you've used to work out what students think the correct answer is. And you get a 25, 25, 25, 25 split throughout the class. And you're looking at the class going, all right, well, there's three different misconceptions here. What on earth yep. do you do? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, first thing I'll say, all is, and this is a bit of a controversial view, I have no technology going on whatsoever for this. Data collection is simply fingers. I think this is one instance where technology gets in the way. I've messed around with voting devices and all this kind of stuff, and all kinds of manner of things can go wrong. I've even mini whiteboards I've moved away from for collecting information from, from diagnostic questions, voting fingers A, B, C, D. But yeah, let's take that, that kind of scenario. Because if all kids get it right, you're laughing. And if all kids get it wrong for the same reason, that's also quite a nice thing as well, because then you can do some whole class teaching and so on. That's okay. But it's this, this split is an absolute nightmare. So my process is this. So I'll, I'll ask a question. Let's say it's that rectangle question I spoke about before. I'll give kids some thinking time, five seconds, 10 seconds, depending on the complexity of the question and, and, and the class I've got in front of me. Then they'll vote with their fingers. One thing for A, two for B, three for C, four for D. And then the process I go through is always the same. So let's say I've got that split that we, you spoke about there, Ollie. I'll always start on answer A and I'll say, right, somebody who's got answer A, uh, can you just explain to us all why you think the answer's A? And this is all about building up a culture, and Doug Lamoff speaks about this, a culture of error, where actually, I sometimes I'm a bit worried when people say we're kind of embracing errors. I don't want to kind of encourage errors, but what I want to encourage is kids not to be afraid to share their mistakes. I want kids to see mistakes as a learning experience. And that, that, that for me takes a long time to build that culture. And I think a large part of it is kids knowing that I'm not recording these scores down anywhere whatsoever. Nobody needs to know about this. This is for us as a class. And I, I say, look, the doors close. The only people who know about what's happening here are me and you. We're all in this together. So if you've got this wrong, tell us all, because if you've got it wrong, probably loads of other people have got it wrong, and we need to sort this out. So I like to build this culture of error. So I say, right, child, you've got... Child, that's bad. <laughs> child, don't know the names. So uh, someone who's got A, would you mind telling us why they've got A? So Lucy, sir, yeah, I'll say. So I, I think it's A, because what I did is I multiplied those two together. Brilliant. Thanks, Lucy. Right. Somebody who's got B, why do you think it's B? Ah, oh, sir, Jack, yeah, Jack. I think it's B because I think for how you add them together. Perfect. And I go through this process, A, B, C, D. All I'm doing as a teacher is facilitating this discussion, making sure the kids are respectful of each other and so on. At the end of that process, I say, right, okay, everybody, you've all heard what people have said. Now's your chance to re-vote. You can stick with what you want or you can re-vote. 99% of the time, everybody votes for the correct answer. Well, that's not enough for me, that, because... Either I'm giving away subtle cues or they're just going off whatever the cleverest kid in the class has gone for. For that, that isn't telling me anything. So then what I do straight after that is I ask a follow-up question. So the follow-up question will be testing the exact same skill 
but the numbers will be changed and the order of the answer will be changed. And on diagnostic questions, we always try to have at least three versions of each question for this very reason. I then bang that question up on the board. And again, if every child gets that question right, or the vast majority get that right, then I'm happy in that moment to move on with the rest of the lesson. But again, it's not enough for me, Ollie, that, because how do I know that they're not just performing based on what's happened then? So then I will make a mental note to think, actually, that question caused problems first time around. So I'm going to include that in next week's homework or next week's low stakes quiz or at the start of the lesson in two weeks time or something like that. So I, I will make sure I go back to that. And if a child's still struggling in the moment and the rest of the class is fine or a group of kids are still struggling, then I'll just make a call as a teacher, whatever's sensible to do. If it's pertinent to the rest of the lesson, that skill, I'll deal with it there and then. I'll set the rest of the kids off on something else and I'll grab some of the kids around in a corner and talk about them. If it's not pertinent to the rest of the lesson, then I'm not afraid to say, actually, if you're still struggling with this, don't worry about it. So I'm going to readdress this next week when I'm better prepared to help you out. Right, let's crack on with some different bit of maths. So yeah, it's, I'm, again, I say the same thing all the time. I'm obsessed with this, Ollie, and I'm convinced that this makes me a better teacher. It's what Harry Fletcher would, his title is book, Responsive Teaching. This for me is responsive teaching. I'm asking a question that I can collect data in in an efficient way. It tells me something useful. And I've then got a process in place where I can then respond to what my kids said. And yeah, for me, it's, it's been a game changer. And I'll do this with every class. Yeah, it's super powerful. I do have a question in relation to this. When I was reading your book, I got most confused in this section because <laughs> I, was, I was thinking back to, we spoke about it tonight when we were talking about Silent Teacher. And you talked about yeah. how the danger of getting each student to talk about their, mis, their misconceptions and profess an incorrect answer because then that confuses mm. all the other students. But yeah, when we come to diagnostic questions, you seem to be in favor of going through every answer, even the incorrect ones. So why the difference here and why before it was an issue that incorrect answers were shared and now it isn't? Yeah, it's a great question, Ollie. For me, the answer is where it comes in the process of learning that particular piece of knowledge. So if you remember, silent teacher comes in at the very start when I'm teaching something for the first time to kids or... It will come in whenever I've identified that a class is pretty ropey at something. And I'm going to say, right, okay, let's bring it back to the beginning. I'm going to teach you this. I'm going to teach you this to the very, very best of my ability. At that stage there, I don't want the discussions for all the reasons that we talked about earlier on. Diagnostic questions are designed to assess understanding and identify misconceptions. So almost by definition, I'm asking something that kids have been taught before, either by me or it's prerequisite knowledge that they've done last year or whenever. So they've already armed with knowledge and it's my role to dig into how secure that knowledge is and identify misconceptions. So that's why I don't mind discussions at this point. And indeed, I need discussions because I need to get to the bottom of what's going on. I need to understand these misconceptions. And you're right, Ollie, there is a chance that those discussions could get confusing for the exact same reasons that I spoke about before. But I don't know another way to avoid that because I need to dig into them. Now, if there is a wrong answer that no child has chosen, I'm not going near it. I may decide that it will be an interesting question to ask, why did I choose that wrong answer? What mistake would a child be making? Or can you think of a better wrong answer? There'll be questions to get kids thinking a bit deeper. And indeed, if I've got kids who've got misconceptions that I've identified and I need to sort them out, I will say to the rest of the class, right, take a look at that question. Can you write me down why you think I've chosen each of those wrong answers? This is a good one as well. Can you write me a diagnostic 
question where each of those wrong answers would actually be the correct answer. That's a really nice one to get kids thinking. And then can you create me your own diagnostic question? So I can get a lot of mileage out of that. But I need to air these misconceptions, Ollie, because I need to get to the bottom of them. And I guess almost in an ideal world, I'd have kids kind of whispering to me privately what each of those misconceptions are. But I think I can manage it in quite an efficient way, this discussion that doesn't that does actually more good than harm because we can get to the bottom of those misconceptions together whereas i almost think it's unfair to have that discussion at the start when i haven't had the chance to equip the kids with knowledge but listen this is a controversial area there's the whole literature on cognitive conflict that says sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't and it can be a risky process but for me personally i feel i need to have those discussions at this point if that makes sense if you'll indulge me, Craig, I, I want to push a little bit, push a little bit more on this one. My understanding was that the design of the diagnostic question was that it reveals misconceptions. So I'm, mm. I'm a bit confused about the need for to get students to verbalise the misconception, where simply selecting the answer reveals it in itself. Yeah, really, really good question. So, right, two things would need to have to happen for you not to need the student to explain their response. One would it would need to be a perfectly designed question. And I, I go to town on what I mean by a really good diagnostic question. And one of the fundamental things of a good diagnostic question is that it's not possible to get the answer right while still holding a misconception. And that's that's easier to say than it is to do in practice. And I think in the book, I used the example of a question that looks good on the surface. It's something like, which of the following numbers is a factor of 20? But there's no multiple included in those options. So you could get a kid who doesn't know the difference between factors and multiples. You can actually get that question right, but without actually being forced to distinguish between what is actually quite a major misconception. So if I get a question that isn't kind of perfectly designed, I'm almost obliged to dig into reasons because I want to make right. sure I know why, why kids have got it. So that would be one reason. The other reason is I need to identify guesses. Now, that is one of the, the problems with it. It's one of the critiques of multiple choice questions. And it's a price you've got to pay for all the benefits of them that they get in terms of accuracy, planning forever, all these kind of things that I could go to town about. But one of the downsides of it is a child may be guessing. So I need to probe a little bit more to try and find out why. And it's not going to be perfect. So I'm not going to be able to hear from every single child, but I need to probe a little bit more to figure out why they're saying what they're saying. So there would be two reasons why I would feel it's important to, to get kids to get kids to explain things. And also, Ollie, and I know this may almost sound like it goes against what I said at the start, but I hope you can see what I mean about the difference between which stage of the learning process this discussion comes in. I think sometimes if a child has a really nice way of explaining something, it can be really, really good for other kids to hear. And it's, I like mathematical discussions in my lessons. It's just, I've just shifted them. I've just shifted them further down the process. And this for me is like a, a really good place to, to have them in, if that makes sense. Mm. So you don't sound convinced there, Ollie. No, so no. The thing is, Ollie. Thing is, Ollie, what you forget, I'm a big fan of your podcast, and I can tell when you agree and when you disagree, and a hmm usually means that you're not having any of this. So. <laughs> I'm not managing my tell effectively, obviously, right, right. <laughs> Craig. No, no, that was actually my sound of I'm trying to remember the question, the question I want to ask, because what, what you just said then made a lot of sense in terms of probing and acting as like a, a catch-all for when you haven't designed a question perfectly. And now I've just remembered my follow-up question, which is that 
writing a diagnostic question takes a couple of things. It takes expertise in relation to anticipating student misconceptions, and it also takes time. Now, you know that I start my lessons using space repetition software called Anki, and I show up questions and students solve them. And I've recently moved to using mini whiteboards and, you know, five, four, three, two, one, show me your answer. And that's a quick way for me to check all students' responses. Now, I'm wondering about your thoughts in relation to the cost-benefit analysis of me, for example, writing new diagnostic questions for every lesson so that I have a little bit of extra detail about student misconceptions versus just showing up a question mini whiteboards, have a look, pick a couple of incorrect answers, talk, have a discussion about them, and, and have a discussion about the correct approach as well. Yeah, another good question. I'll, I'd say one of the major benefits for me, and I'm biased as anything, so feel free to disregard all this, but one of the major benefits for me of diagnostic questions is what Doug Lamoff calls the ability to plan for error. Now, I find this particularly important for less, less experienced teachers, but my, I still benefit it massively from myself. So imagine the scenario, Ollie, where you are, you're in your first kind of year of teaching, first couple of years of teaching or whatever. You've got potentially a fairly difficult class in the sense that you've got to keep an eye on them for behavior reasons. There's lots of things going on. Perhaps it's a particularly big class. So you've lots of things to contend with in that particular environment. You ask a non-diagnostic question, so an open-ended question, not one, a, a question that's a free response. There's, there's no A, B, C, or D. You do your thing with your mini whiteboards. Kids hold up the mini whiteboards. And you've actually got three or four different answers around the room. Now, you as a teacher in that moment have to try and get to the bottom of why those kids have got those answers. Now, if you're an experienced teacher with a class that you know inside and out, that can actually be a really interesting process there because together as a class, we can try and figure out why Jack's got that answer and Emma's got that answer. But imagine you're a less experienced teacher who doesn't have the wealth of knowledge that you've built up. In that moment, you are trying to do a few things. Understand, well, firstly, identify each of the wrong answers, which on mini whiteboards, so we, we all know, can be, can be fairly tricky sometimes. Understand each of those. Now, that's flipping hard to do in the moment, in the kind of heat of the battle, and you've got 30 expectant eyes looking at you. But then decide how to deal with it. So have you got an explanation? Have you got a resource? Have you got a visualization to help deal with that misconception? You've got to do all that whilst Emma's messing around at the back. Somebody's coming in the door. Somebody's moving seats. It's all kicking. Electricity's going. It's all kicking off. The wind's blowing. That's a big one in the UK. If it's windy, your lessons are a nightmare. <laughs> so it's, it's all happening. Whereas what I can do with the diagnostic question is I can plan for error. So in advance, I can think to myself, okay, if a child answers B, I know pretty sure why they've answered B. And I can dig deeper if I get an explanation, as we spoke about before. But even without that explanation, if it's a good question, I have a pretty good idea why they've answered B. So if they've answered B, I'm going to say this, I'm going to show them this, and so on. And if they don't answer B, well, that's fine. That's okay. If they answer C, I'm going to do this, I'm going to show this. The thinking can take place outside of the heat of the environment in the lesson. And for me, that is, for an experienced teacher, that's important. But for an inexperienced teacher, Ollie, that is massive. That is massive because, again, and you don't, and also, you don't have to do your thinking on your own. You can do your thinking as a department, and we do this. We write diagnostic questions together. It's the most useful thing that I think a, a maths department can do together. Because, as you said, Ollie, they are time consuming to write, but I tell you what, they're flipping useful to write. So, the process we do for for writing diagnostic questions 
is that we'll take a topic that's coming up next week for a certain year group and we cycle through the year group so that every teacher can benefit. So say next week, year nines are doing percentage increase and decrease. And what we'll do, we'll arrive at the meeting with a question. We've all written a diagnostic question ourselves and we have that on one side of the, on one piece of paper. And on another piece of paper, we have the four answers that we would put for our diagnostic question. So one will be right and three will be wrong. And then everybody pairs up and we swap the question with each other. So not the answers, the question. And the job of your partner is to think, if this was my question, what four answers would I write? Get it right, write the three answers. And then once that process has happened, you swap back and then you compare as a pair. Okay, actually, I chose these four answers, but okay, you've, you've, we've chose the same for A, you've picked that one. But wait a minute, you've gone for 17 and I've gone for this. Why did you do that? Well, I did that because I've seen my kids make this mistake. And Ollie, the conversation teachers have is flipping brilliant because I don't know about your department. Well, in fact, I do know about your departmental meetings. They sound absolutely brilliant. That's some of the best I've, I've ever heard of. And I've told everybody about these. But I'll tell you what, I see lots of departmental meetings that are flipping admin central, getting bogged down in a load of nonsense. And whenever you do a bit of teaching and learning, everyone's so knackered that it ends up being somebody showing a bit of a PowerPoint, or oh, this is a good worksheet I've used, waste of time. Whereas this kind of stuff, it gets teachers really focused on pedagogy. And what I love about it is you get experienced teachers speaking to inexperienced teachers, learning from each other. So an experienced teacher will say, oh, okay, no, actually, I've seen kids make this mistake and this mistake in the past. An inexperienced teacher, they can't buy that kind of experience. They just don't have it. They're like, whoa, I wouldn't have seen that coming because I've never taught this. I'm an inexperienced teacher. I've always been good at maths. Actually, I'm now learning from you. So it's such a nice experience. So for, for those two reasons, Ollie, for the experience of writing questions together as a department and the ability to plan for error in advance, they're two of the big reasons why I'm sold on this approach, if, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And Talking about planning for error, that really is a nice thread back to cognitive load theory because we're talking about giving novice teachers a way to manage their cognitive load when they're in the classroom. By, by putting those misconceptions into their long-term memory already, they've just freed up all this working memory to work out with the, the here and now of the classroom. One thing before we run out of time for this today is part of the interview. When I was reading your book, I had, a, I had an idea about writing diagnostic questions. And it was an idea from, imagine you've got two novice teachers yeah, both starting out. Maybe they went through the training together, or maybe they're still going through the training together, and they've got, been set to different schools, but they managed to teach the same kind of content. Yeah, I had the idea that perhaps they could write mini progress checks or quizzes, open ended for their classes, give it to their class, and then kind of swap responses. It could be on on different different content either, either, and then from the students' responses, derive actually derive the diagnostic questions. Is that an approach you've taken at all? Yeah, it's, it's re really interesting you say that, Ollie, because when I first started writing questions myself, it's hard to think of misconceptions sometimes. And the best way to come up with misconceptions is, is actual student responses. And that is one of the drawbacks of using a, a multiple choice question that almost by definition, you are restricting the, the range of possible responses to the, the, the four options or the five options that you've chosen. So there's, there's two ways I counteract that. One is exactly what you've said there, is I will take inspiration 
from non-multiple choice questions or non-diagnostic questions to inform me to write diagnostic questions better. And the other one, which I was skeptical of, I didn't think would work, but it's actually really, really nice. If you've built up this culture of error in your class where actually kids aren't afraid to say, actually, I thought this, then after you've asked the diagnostic question, I just throw into the mix. I just say, look, be entirely honest with me. And I'd absolutely love it if you, if somebody could tell me this. Was anybody thinking of a different answer that wasn't one of those four? And quite a lot of the time, a kid will say, yeah, actually, sir, I'll be honest with you. I was thinking that the answer was 14. Oh, why is that? Oh, because of this. And then I think, actually, that's that's an excellent misconception. So the kids themselves, you can still tap into the benefit of non-multiple choice questions if kids aren't afraid to voice the mistakes that they've made. So that, that'd be, yeah, your way's excellent. And I like to chuck in my way as well. Okay. We better let you go, mate. Cheers, Al. Thanks so much. Chat soon. Oh, listen, thanks, everybody. I'm sorry I can't stick around. It's just one of these things I've, I've organized another interview. It'll all be kicking off in this interview as well. So just give you a bit of background here. It's the uh, head of Edexcel, which is our biggest exam board. And we've just finished our GCSE. And there's a bit of controversy about some of the papers. So before the controversy, he'd agreed to be interviewed by me. And <laughs> Twitter has just been going mental with questions for him. So God knows what's going to happen here. But yeah, he's. Uh, I'm speaking to him in 10 minutes. So I'll need to get a bit of food uh, before then. So listen, I've absolutely I've absolutely loved uh, speaking to you all. Some, some brilliant questions. And yeah, Ollie, we'll, we'll get in the diary and d- doing this again sometime fairly soon, hopefully. Sounds good, mate. Thanks so much for your time. All right. Take care, everybody. Lovely speaking to you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Craig Barton. As mentioned, episode 20B will be out within a couple of weeks of 20A's release. In the meantime, if you were interested in the points on cognitive load theory discussed in the podcast, I'd suggest jumping back and listening to episode 9 of the ERRR, in which we talk to Andrew Martin, and we go into this topic in much more detail. As always, you can find show notes with links to all of the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com. If you enjoyed this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you've really been enjoying the ERRR, I'd love for you to consider supporting the production of the show through making a donation on Patreon. Making a donation, however large or small, will help me to cover the costs of room hire and sound engineering. Check out patreon.com forward slash ERRR to explore the possibility of supporting the show. If you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, please, please, please drop me a line via Twitter or email. It's always wonderful to hear from listeners. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.